Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for a new day of life. And Lord, we thank you for uh, the many blessings that you pour out on us. Uh, as we learned this morning in the devotional, uh, we are tested by those blessings to see if we will become blessings to others. And Lord, that's why we're here in a large part, because we want to bless others with your truth. I pray your Holy Spirit would guide us throughout this class and this entire session, that we would be better equipped to win souls for Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Okay, there have been a few changes in our program. Maybe I should back up and tell you this. Um, Emmanuel Institute, in case you, you don't know, is the training school for the lay training school. Well, it isn't just lay training because we did a pastoral training earlier this year as well for the Michigan Conference. And that's because the Michigan Conference believes in evangelism and soul winning and getting the work done. And I mean, I, I, I can't express to you how thrilled I am to work in a conference that's invested there because not all conferences are. And um, when we started out the Emanuel Institute, our main program was a four-month program and we trained a lot of uh, uh, young people, well, we trained people of all ages, but a lot of times for four months, you get, get younger students who would be coming and learning how to become Bible workers. And there were a lot of blessings that we had doing that, but one of the challenges that we ran into was that when a person would come to our training, oftentimes there would be some area that would open up for them to go do Bible work somewhere else besides where they were from. And that may be a blessing to them and the church that they were going to or the state that they were going to and the conference they were going to. But the local church, oftentimes the local churches would be sponsoring. They'd be helping out. It's like, oh, this is great. They're going to go. They're going to get trained. They're going to come back. No, they're not going to come back. They're going to go somewhere else and be Bible workers and set some church on fire. And what was happening is it wasn't uh, impacting the local churches. And that's where we have felt as Emmanuel Institute and as our Michigan Conference, that the change really needs to take place among our laity. And again, if you heard the devotional this morning, it was touching on that idea. The work is not going to be finished by the ministers. It's going to be finished by God's people in every walk of life and in every uh, career, occupation, what have you. So a couple years ago now, Emmanuel Institute shifted its focus to doing short intensives. And we do programs where last year at camp meeting, for example, we did our witnessing class. You've got to imagine that if we take, you know, four months to teach a class, when you distill it into a, a few days, there are things that are getting left out. And so typically in our short program, we'll go over all the how-to about witnessing and, and how to give your testimony and, and how to strike up a spiritual conversation. That is not what this is. What we're doing this year is our Bible boot camp, and our Bible boot camp is specifically designed to help people gain an understanding and a level of confidence to give Bible studies. That's really um, our main focal point here, and I'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. Now, one of the things that we did last year is, and we work with a conference office, and uh, it was Jim Mitchell who pitched the idea. He said, I think I'd like to do an Emmanuel session during camp meeting makes it more accessible to people who can't go any other time. And we attached a $35 fee to that for the different materials we used. Well, this is a different, and something else I should tell you is all of our Emanuel Institute sessions are, are um, now what's the word I'm blanking on here? Supplemented. 
<laughs> Good. Amen. Um, uh, what was it? Subsidized. Subsidized, thank you, by the conference. In other words, fees never cover the cost of the program. Um, but the reason for that is, again, accessibility. You want the programs to be accessible. Now, going into this camp meeting, we had a sign-up. There's a sign-up, and a lot of you signed up. I don't know if there are those of you here this morning who didn't. But those who signed up and you paid a $35 fee, we're refunding your fee uh, with a little caveat here, and I'll let you know. As we talked about it, we thought, I want as many people as can attend this to be here because I want our people giving Bible studies. Um, I would encourage you to be in here for the long haul. We're going every day for six days. But if you're going to go out, well, that's not true. We left... We left one seminar slot open. It was kind of selfish the way we did it because that two, that two o'clock slot in the afternoon, like two to 3.15, we're not having class then. And one of the reasons is if you've ever taught a seminar at the right immediate after lunch hour <laughs> and everybody's sleepy, we said, ah, go to other seminars, check those out, and come back here at 3.30 to 5.30. That's right, when you, when you wake up. But that's... That's how we're running it. It's all, you know, six days of this. The evenings are open. We wanted to leave, you know, things open for a little bit of the camp meeting experience. But if you're just here trying this out and you're like, hey, I've got other seminars I want to go to, I'd rather have you get some than none. With this, with this uh, stipulation that you put it to practice. Everyone here, I'm going to tell you right now, everyone here can give a Bible study. I, I, I don't know what the devil's telling you in your head, but everyone here can give a Bible study and win a, win a soul to Christ. And we're going to hopefully encourage you in that direction this week. So we've opened it up. What we are doing is, how many of you got, got the manual? They probably explained this coming in. in the, you, there are three things that we're giving out during this week. One is this, the training manual. And what this has in it is all of our Emmanuel Bible Doctrine studies. And then it also has Pastor Cameron's um, a, a Bible study outlines that he made for his Unlock Revelation meeting, and I'll explain that, why that is in a minute. Um, well, I'll explain it right now. I primarily wrote the Emmanuel Institute Bible Doctrine Studies, Emmanuel, uh, Cameron wrote his studies, and when you do a study, when you give a study, you always have your own angle that you take with it, and so when he teaches, he's going to be teaching more from the perspective of his study. You also have the It Is Written studies, and one of the reasons... The key reasons is that the BibleStudyOffer.com uh, program is using these. And so we want you to understand how to use these studies in context of what we're going over. Now that may seem like an odd thing to say until I tell you that the purpose of a Bible boot camp is not to walk you through a study. We're not just going to give you a study. Uh, there's nothing more frustrating to me, and maybe it's not the case with you, than to go into Sabbath school and go over and read through the lesson I read through during the week. Why am I here? I can read this at home. I don't want you to come and we're going to read through a printed lesson together. You can read through a printed lesson. You can fill out the blanks. What we want to teach you in a Bible boot camp is the doctrine and why we teach it, why it's in the study set. I mean, you've got, we've got people today who are like, wow, we're always talking about the doctrines and we need to talk about more about Christ and our relationship with him. Well, that should be coming out in your studies. But the reason that we address studies and the reason that most every Bible study set you get in the Seventh-day Adventist Church follows the same uh, pattern is because it's addressing key questions that people have 
that they need to have answered in order for them to make decisions for Christ. And so what we're going to be covering in the boot camp, uh, you don't have the, uh, yes you do, because I just gave these out. I was trying to figure what I put on here. I want you to look at your, um, this outline. So what we have is we have the, the manual, we have the fundamentals of faith, which we'll talk about a little bit further this week. Um, it's a great resource. Um, and then we've got the It Is Written uh, Bible Study Lessons. So those who registered and paid ahead of time will get a refund, a $15 refund, because they paid $35. The materials are $20. Now, for the rest of you who come in and you're like, this is what we're going to do. When we go over, there are things we're going to go over in class that we'll give you materials for, but they're not going to be the complete materials that are, are for those who have paid. If you want the materials, we have them at, the, at our cost. And that's $20, and some of you have purchased that. I think um, $12 for the, the, this binder. These are $2. You can get them at the ABC at $2, too. And $6, Jim, isn't that? These are $6 in the ABC, too. So you can get them here. You can, it's around there. Well, it's going to be a little cheaper here because we're not charging the tax for it. I don't know. What, anyway. So and we're just 6 bucks. That's all I know. I'm not... I'm not the ABC manager or anything like that. So that's kind of how we're rolling this this week. Um, if you have questions on that, you can ask during the break. We will take breaks roughly at 50-minute intervals. Now, if we're finishing up a topic and it's not, we got to go another 10, we'll go another 10, and we'll take the break a little later. That happens sometimes, just so that you know. But we're, we're not going to try to have you sitting here for three hours straight, Okay. But if you look at, this is not the thing that I wanted to talk about. I had it right in front of me a minute ago. I want you to look at that schedule. <laughs> oh, I just handed you mine. because <laughs> I, Daniel, could you get me another one of the schedules? I want to give you a brief overview. Okay, we need a few more of those up here. So, And we had some folks come in. So if you look at, for example, session one on Sunday... You'll notice that we have an orientation period and then uh, intro to prophecy. And um, uh, Pastor Cameron's going to jump in here in the orientation in a moment. Um, those who are working with us this week, I'm going to be teaching. Pastor Cameron disappeared, but he's going to be teaching. And my brother Jim's going to be teaching. And Pastor Daniel, we had Pastor Wes Peppers. He usually helps us out. But we gave him a reprieve because he's doing the morning talks this year, and he just came off an Indiana camp meeting. And so um, you won't see his name on the list. If you look at this, you, you, each day is divided up in session 1A and 1B. And part of this was for our recording. They are recording these so that they would know what we're covering. But we don't have, you know, and sometimes if you, maybe some of you have been through a Bible boot camp before, and they'll do it just by topic. So you do one on Daniel 2, you do one on the Bible, you'll do one on uh, uh, the state of the dead, and you have each doctrine as a class. We're not doing it that way, partially because of time and partially because as we're trying to teach the doctrine, we're trying to give a broader view of the importance in the, in the framework of, of each thing we're looking at. So for example, tomorrow morning, session two, if you look at Monday, in the morning, you've got uh, great controversy. And if you're new to camp meeting, you'll know that, especially for a Sunday, a lot of your, like I said, most of your seminars start on Monday. Some start on Sunday. 
but the first day of the seminar is always a, what's going to happen? Nobody knows. We got about 150 billion seminars. It can't be any this year. So you don't know, is this one going to get five people or 25 people or 250 people? And so you've got to, there's going to be this gauging today, a little bit uncomfortable, but as we find out who's kind of visiting in and, and what have you. Um, so just be prepared for that. Now, Monday morning, for the three-hour session in the morning, Cameron's going to go over the great controversy. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, that's like a, an hour presentation or evangelistic meetings, or that's, we usually do one study. What's he going to do for three hours? I'm going to tell you, that's going to be one of the most fascinating and powerful studies that you get. And it's, it's I, I'm, I'm not going to say any more about it now. Uh, well, I will say something more about it. We did at Great Lakes Adventist Academy, we did a boot camp this year for the students. And I think that, among all of them, just kind of blew them away. And it's because, as Seventh-day Adventists, a lot of Adventists either don't realize it or have forgotten it, that our great controversy picture is unique. Uh, how many of you have ever um, listened to or watched YouTube or with, with uh, uh, apologi uh, Christian apologist arguments against atheists? You know, this is why we're Christian and kind of taking on uh, atheistic arguments. Have you ever heard anybody do that before? It, there's some fascinating guys. There's a guy named John Lennox that Elder Gallimore really gets into, and, and he's got some fascinating explanations for, you know, reasonable uh, um, scientific evidence for Christian belief and all that kind of refuting that all the atheistic, uh, you know, Christians are, uh, you know, don't know what they're talking about, this kind of thing. Anyway, but what amazes me is you get into these things, and I've heard some stellar arguments, guys like Ravi Zacharias, if you know that name, and yet, you know where they won't go? They won't go to the great controversy. When we talk about evil, you know, one of the, one of the main reasons that people don't believe in God is because if, if God is so good, why is the world so evil? That is one of the main objections that people have to Christianity. And so when the atheist, when the Christian argues against that, I mean, I've heard some good arguments um, that, that I'm tempted to go into and I'm not going to right now. But at the end of the day they leave out the one clearest argument, and that is that we're in this great controversy between good and evil that began in heaven, that we're in in the midst of in this earth, and it's God is going to be completing this thing. And Well, it amazes me to sit and listen to some of these, I mean, these guys are mental giants, and yet nothing about the great controversy. It's unique to Seventh-day Adventism. I mean, it shouldn't be, it's in the Bible, but it's just, it's just how it is. And what Cameron's going to share on that is going to blow you away tomorrow. And so you'll see segments of things that we cover. Now in the afternoon, we're going over just the topic of the Antichrist. But if you look at the session three on um, Tuesday morning, you see the law, the Sabbath, the mark of the beast, and the USA all lumped together. Well, we're not going to exhaust those subjects on Tuesday morning, but they're all tied together philosophically. And so when we're going over the doctrine what we're going to be covering is, is what, why, is it, why is it so important that we talk and teach people about the law? You know, and why, where the Sabbath, where does that come in? Why is that? Why, I've had church members say, Pastor, my, my Baptist neighbor is so happy in their religion. Why do I want to go mess it up by telling them about the Sabbath? Right? Because then they're going to have all this challenge of having to decide whether they want to keep. Well, where do we get the idea that truth ruins people's lives? Right? I mean, that's the devil's. But this is the. Sometimes that's the way we get to thinking. So you'll see these topics are lumped together because we're not just going over Bible studies. We're trying to communicate to you the significance of why we believe what we do and teach what we do as Seventh-day Adventists. And that'll become clearer as we go 
in our session. So that's just to give you a little idea. You see the layout of what we're going to try to cover this week. Um, I will bring out on session five on Thursday in the morning, my brother Jim's going to be talking about health, entertainment, and Christian dress. One thing that I found interesting is the It Is Written study series has nothing about Christian dress in it. And in fact, many of our churches and sermons have nothing to say about Christian. It's become such a, oh, we don't want to offend anybody, and people are so clueless. And I mean, I know people who walk into my church, and they're not dressed at all like a Christian. I'm not criticizing for that. Nobody's ever taught them. I remember my very first church, I had a lady and her husband who joined. They went through an Amazing Facts series, and they joined our church. The pastor had baptized them, and... Uh, you know, she was wearing all her jewelry, and, and, and I was sitting with them to clear them on coming into, they'd come into the church, but I, I, I visited with them as they were new Christians to go over some things with them and just went over our church beliefs. And I knew that in that conversation, they were like, yeah, yeah, they were on board with everything, but I knew what I was coming up to. And I'm thinking, okay, it's going to come. And I'm, I'm sweat. I must have been sweating. I'm just like, how am I going to bring this up? And they're all happy. And I'm like, oh, if they only knew what's coming up on this list, you know, and I went through. But when I got to the, before I even got to the subject of, of Christian dress, and I got into the subject of entertainment, they said, we've never heard this before. Nobody ever told us that there ought to be principles that guide our Christian, you know, our choice of entertainment. I'm just telling you, sometimes people steer away from certain topics because they're uncomfortable. And you're just holding back what could be a huge blessing to somebody. And when they learned it, they're like, hey, if that's what the Bible says, we're going to do it. And I was like, praise the Lord. But my point is, <clears throat> there are some lesson series that don't cover it. But I'm going to tell you that if that person is going to join the Seventh-day Adventist Church and be baptized, somebody's going to have to cover it at some time. Uh, somebody should cover it. I, sh I say have to, but I've run into a number of people who have been baptized and it has been covered. But that's not, that's not how, how it should be done, and that's not how even, in, like I said, in, in inspiration, what have you, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit as we go on this week. But that segment there is going to, you need to know those things, and how do I communicate, and how do I teach those things, especially when they're missing from the lesson, and I'm going to have to go over it. And so those things are going to be very helpful, maybe very helpful to some of you. If, if, if you were never really instructed too well, I know there are Seventh-day Adventists who say, I know that we dress a certain way, and, but I'm not exactly sure why. You're going to know why from the Bible. It's not because Ellen White said so. As much as we appreciate the spirit of prophecies, some Adventists are like, well, I think we do that because Ellen White said it. No, everything we do, we do because the scripture says it. And uh, you'll see that this week. So it's just a little bit of a, a, a heads up as to what we're going to be looking at this week. Could somebody swing that door shut there? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, we get more people in here. And I tried to cool it down for you and get the humidity out of the room. But, you know, the doors just, we had uh, the literature evangelists, the MAGA bookers here this weekend. And, boy, they're in and out and in and out every time. It's just like my kids, you know. And I thought I just told you to shut that. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> Who had, a, somebody had a hand up. Did I see a hand up over here? Okay, maybe not. All right. Um, just making sure I'm covering everything that I need to. Now, I, it was interesting, and I want to share with you a couple statements here from the pen of inspiration. In, uh, we, we call this a boot camp. We've tried different, now there are different ministries that do boot camps, and we try to come up, well, we don't want to call it the same thing everybody else does, but there's just not a good term that's like boot camp. According to the dictionary, boot camp is a short, intensive, 
and rigorous course of training. Isn't that what you want? You come to camp and you want rigorous, right? There's two of you who want rigorous. The rest of you are just going to get it. That's all. Okay? But it's often used in terms of military, right? Because the militaries have boot camps and they're rigorous courses of training, short, designed to do what? Prepare those soldiers to what? Battle. To get active, right? Uh, we want to prepare you for battle, right? We want you to leave here active. Ellen White was in Basel, Switzerland, and they were stationed in a place where there was a field being used nearby by the military for training people. And she, would, she comments on this in the book Gospel Workers, and I'm not quoting all of it uh, for you, but then she makes this uh, point. She says, for hours, soldiers are drilled to disencumber themselves of their knapsacks and place them quickly in position again on the person. So you got to take the knapsack off and put it on and take it off and put it on and take it off and put it on. Learn to do that quickly. They're taught how to stack their arms and how to seize them quickly, right? Put the gun down, pick it up, put it down, pick it up, maybe disassemble it, put it back together, right? They are drilled in making a charge against the enemy and are trained in all kinds of maneuvers. Thus, the drill goes on, preparing men for any emergency. And should those who are fighting the battle of Prince Emmanuel be less earnest and painstaking in their preparation for spiritual warfare? No, we need boot camps. That's page 75 of Gospel Workers. And a similar statement in Evangelism, page 115, says ministers should love order and should discipline themselves, and then they can successfully discipline the church of God and teach them to work harmoniously like well-drilled company of soldiers. If discipline and order are necessary for successful, successful action on the battlefield, the same are as much more needful in the warfare in which we are engaged as the object to be gained is of greater value and more elevated in character than those for which opposing forces contend on the field of battle. And so we're in a boot camp, and we're fighting a, a greater battle than anything on this earth that we see with our, our physical eyesight. So we want to get you active in studies, and that's what we hope to get to by the end of the week. Now, there's two reasons I've noticed that people don't, aren't active in studies. Okay? The first one is they don't think they know enough. I'm not going to ask you how many of you here have said that before to your pastor or somebody else. I don't know enough, which always, that always floors me. Because I think to my, the first thing that comes to my mind is this, how much is enough? Like, what's the tipping point that you, now, oh, you know, here's the wheel within a wheel with Ezekiel. Let me explain this to you. And you're like, I got it. Now I can go give a Bible study. I mean, where's the point that you have enough information? You're not going to know everything because, you know, a five-year-old can ask you a question you can't answer. Right? So when is that point? There is no magic enough point. And Cameron's going to talk about that in just a moment. The other reason, and I think probably the more encompassing reason that people don't actively give Bible studies is they lack confidence. I'm going to tell you there's a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who lack confidence in the Seventh-day Adventist message. Not even because they want to necessarily, but because there's so many voices, even within the church, that question, why do we still teach all these things? And why, do, and why are we so particular? And when you become unsettled in things, how are you going to get confidently share with somebody else? Part of, your, part of your ability in leading somebody into the truth is that you believe and embrace the truth, right? And uh, it's funny to me how a, a non-believer can believe more in, in, in 
things that are passing away with this world than a believer can believe in eternal truth. I mean, if you ever have somebody, and I don't, I'm not trying to pick on anybody who's ever sold for rainbow before, but you have a rainbow vacuum cleaner salesman, look, they believe, one way or another, they believe in that product, and you need it, and your life is not going to be good until you have this thing. And yet we get, you know, skittish about the truth, and I want to tell you something about, you maybe have encountered this before when you've tried to share with somebody. I'm going to tell you that a lot of, I was going to say non-believers or even non-Adventists as you're sharing your faith, are, can be a lot more confident in what they don't know than you are in what you do know. And this is what I mean. I went to, a, I remember going door to door and I knocked on this door and the guy opens the door. We get to talking about the Bible. He says, I'm an atheist. I don't believe any of that stuff. And I said, what do you mean you're an atheist? I said, how can you not believe the Bible? I mean, he said, the Bible, and I refer him to Daniel 2, and I'm giving the short version. You know, here the Bible predicted the rise and fall of world empires before they ever happened. He says, the Bible's written by a bunch of men. I said, how can a bunch of men predict that? And he, and, and, uh, he said, no, 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 it didn't. No, it didn't. I said, and he talks about, I don't know what he said. He brought something up, and I referred him to Isaiah, where Isaiah talks about the Lord, how he sits on the circle of the earth. I said, your scientists for, for, for centuries thought the earth was flat when the Bible says it's round. Way back in the book of Isaiah, he says, nobody ever believed the earth was flat. And he begins arguing this with me. And he argued it with a whole lot of conviction. And I'm just telling you that there are times when you're trying to share with somebody and they may counter you and they may sound like they know everything they're talking about and they have nothing. <laughs> they just, when a person talks confidently, a lot of times we'll get all timid and we'll back off. There's something to be said about having confidence in what you believe in. And... You're not going to walk away from this class knowing everything. But I am hoping and praying that you can leave with confidence. You know, sometimes you hear, you hear or learn something. Because we're going to be going through Scripture. You're going to see it in the Scripture. You might not be able to know the verse right off the top of your head. Sometimes we think we got to know that. It's like, i got to know chapter and verse and be able to just shoot it. No, you don't. As long as you know it's in there. As long as you know it's in there and you have the confidence you can win somebody to Christ. You're going to be learning text this week, and you're like, oh, where was that? But you saw it, and you know it's there. And that level of confidence, you know I can look it up and find it. There are people who talk to you with confidence about things that are not in there, <laughs> and that they don't. They make it sound like they know. And when we get intimidated, you're going to leave here with confidence that you know God's truth for these last days, and God's entrusted you with that truth to give to others so that truth can make them free. Amen? Um. I love this statement by Ellen White in the book Evangelism. It's found on page 179. She talks about a certain actor back in her day named Betterton. Or, well, maybe it wasn't in her day. It was in the, in the Archbishop of Canterbury's day, who she's citing here. And um, she talks about this. There was this, this stage actor named Betterton who was, everybody was like, hey, this guy is, you know, anyway, a very good actor. She says, on a certain occasion when Betterton, the celebrated actor, was dining with Dr. Sheldon, Archbishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop said to him, pray, Mr. Betterton, tell me why it is that you actors affect your audiences so powerfully by speaking of things imaginary. Why are people, why do people get buy-in so much when they see you acting up there like it's the real deal? Now listen to what he responds. 
My Lord, replied Betterton, with due submission to your grace, permit me to say that the reason is plain. It all lies with the power of enthusiasm. We on the stage speak of things imaginary as if they were real. And you in the pulpit speak of things real as if they were imaginary. Whew. Isn't that powerful? There's something to be said about when you really embrace the truth. And people can sense that. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but I'm going to have Pastor Cameron share a little something he shared with us in our, uh, one of our pastor worships this week, just about, you know, sometimes we think if we just had more time to study. In fact, I'd had students come to a four-month session of Emmanuel, and, and we'd be wrapping up, and they'd say, oh, if we could just go another two months, even one month, you know, and, and we would debate, we, you know, as leadership, we thought, well, you know, would it be beneficial? And I thought, you know what? There's nothing that they're going to learn here in the classroom that they won't learn now putting what they've learned into practice. There's a point where you've got to take what you learned and put it into practice. One of my favorite statements, and I'm going to turn the time over to Cameron, it kind of builds on this, is in the book Education, and this is what Ellen White says, it is in the water and not on land that men learn to swim. You can talk swimming all day long. We can talk all about the theory of swimming, but you know what you're going to have to do at one point? Jump in. And when you jump in, you learn what you can never learn before you jump in the water. And um, you'll see where I'm going with that when Pastor Cameron shares what he does here. Well, let's go to our Bibles and go to the Matthew chapter 8. And uh, there was just a devotional thought I shared, uh, like I said, with the pastors this week. And uh, Mark thought it would be good to share here. He's given me a limited amount of time, so I can't do as much as I'd like with that. But if there's more that you, we could see out of this and you feel robbed of that, that is Mark's fault. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, let's go to Matthew. Ch <laughs> Matthew chapter 8 is where, we're, and I'll, I'll give you the, the bigger version, but faster. Is that okay? Because we're going to do, as you know, this is a condensed course. Oh, yeah. He opened it up some extra time by the mercies of the Lord. That's nice. Um, Matthew chapter 8, and I tell you what, before we do anything in God's word, can we have a brief word of prayer, please? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful, rainy, rainy morning. Thank you for giving us what we need. And Lord, what we need now is a clearer understanding and a firmer foundation in Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us not only to know what we should know, but know how to share that precious truth with others. So bless us as we study this morning, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 8, just to give you a little bit of context for where we're going at the end of this message here, this little study, we'll just start with Matthew chapter 8, and I find that in Matthew chapter 8, there is a fascinating back and forth battle between Christ and Satan being played out in the ministry of Jesus. It's rather a chess match. And for the beginning of the chapter, Christ is having victory after victory after victory. And we'll just very briefly, uh, there's a, Christ is advancing against Satan's armies, if you will. For instance, in verses 2 through 4, we see Jesus healing a leper. Verses 5 through 13, Jesus heals the centurion's servant. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Verses 16 and 17, Jesus heals from sickness and frees from demon possession a great number of people. So it's just victory after victory. For, Jesus is on a march, okay? And obviously Satan is just getting hit back and hit back, but Satan doesn't give up. He's going to come back, and now you're going to start to see some counter moves. For instance, in verse 18, 
a great multitude. Now, this seems like a nice thing that a great multitude would be interested in Jesus' ministry, but look at verse 18. And when Jesus saw the great multitudes about him, he gave a command to do what? Depart from the other side, right? He's like, "Uh uh-oh, they're coming after me a little bit, right? Uh, Verses 19 and 20, watch what happens here. Then a certain scribe uh, came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever I go, wherever you go. It sounds good, right? But look at Jesus' rebuttal, verse 20. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So it's like, I can see that you're not really in a long haul, out of my way. (laughs) Goes on, verse 21. Another disciple says he wants to follow Jesus, but he gives an excuse. But slow down, I need to go back and bury my father. Like, Satan is starting to throw obstacles in Jesus' way to throw him down. There's the great multitude. There's the scribe who really wants to, but doesn't really want to. There's the guy that wants to follow, but wait, we have to wait. Trying to slow Jesus down. Verses 23 to 27, Satan starts unleashing the big guns, right? Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was uh, was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. And of course, the disciples came to him, woke him up saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the uh, the sea, and there was a great calm. So there's this uh, tempest. So he's escaping from the crowd and these these detractor people. He gets in the boat and Satan throws a storm at him, right? And of course, Christ conquers the storm. And notice the question in verse 27. And this kind of interestingly sets up where we're headed. So the men marveled. Now, who are these men? His disciples. These are not strangers who are just first witnessing this, but they're seeing the power of Christ in ever-increasing examples. And they marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, clearly they believe Jesus enough to be following him, And they've witnessed some pretty interesting miracles. But now he's taking on nature itself. And as you study through the life of Jesus, it seems like they have this strata or a hierarchy of power that Christ has. That he can heal the sick but not raise the dead. He can do this one thing, but the wind and the waves, that's on another level, right? And so they're like, who is this guy? They're trying to wrap their minds around who is it we're following. Which leads us to verse 28. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergensenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. So this is yet another, and it seems like Jesus is going through the crowd, headed over the sea, and he has a destination in mind, and the closer and closer Jesus gets to where his destination is, the higher and higher the stakes that Satan throws at him, right? Starts with little distractions, then the big storm, and now it's just straight out demons attacking him. And suddenly, oh, by the way, this is a good illustration, and since we have the extra time, we'll just do a little second on this. Leave your finger in Matthew 8 and go to Mark chapter 5. Mark 4 ends with the winds and the waves obey Jesus, and now we have the demon possession encounter. But there is an incidental detail that could trip you up. Because notice what it says in Matthew 8, verse 28. When he come to the other side, to the country of the Gergensenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce that no one could pass that way. 
verse five, uh, chapter five of Mark, verse one. Then they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So people say, aha, the Bible is riddled with inconsistencies. It's Friends, let me tell you something. Please don't get tripped up in your Bible studies. Don't let people get you tripped up on these incidental details. Is it possible that two people could witness the same event and be sharing the exact same story, but something like that be different? And it still not be a discrepancy. For instance, is it possible that there were two, but one was the prominent one, the spokesman of the two, the front man, if you will, and the other one was kind of slid in the background. So one guy focuses on the number of them, the other, the other guy focuses on the interaction itself with the one guy. So please don't get wrapped up in the one versus two thing. I just want to throw that out there, okay? But they complement each other with the details they provide. But we're going to live in Matthew chapter 8 for now. Now, I, I introduced Mark chapter 5 because it's going to be critical in just a minute. But for right now, we're going to live in Matthew chapter 8, this version of it. Now, again, it says, When he come to the other side of the, to the country of the Gergensines, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Now, I don't know if you catch the almost humor in this. This is verse 29. Skip back to verse 27. What is the question the disciples were asking? Who is this man? His own disciples were wondering. And the demons come along and say, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? And I'm guessing Peter was in the background like, oh, there's the answer. That's who he is. <laughs> But do these demons know who Jesus is? Yeah. Absolutely they do. So why, why, do they, why do they bother? Oh, we're going to get into the why. I think this is fascinating. This is fascinating, okay? But now notice their question also. Have you come here to torment us before the what? Pause right there. Is it possible that the demons not only know the identity of Jesus, but they also know the scripture and the prophecies that indicate their destruction. Are they students of Bible prophecy? By the way, if you were a demon, you'd be a student of Bible prophecy too, right? Because that's the whole end game. That's the whole deal. So these, by the way, the demons have no problem confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is a fact. It is not fiction. They're not like guessing and hemming and hawing. They're like, well, if you show us enough evidence, they know who they're dealing with. Have you come here to torment? And their fear is that Jesus is coming into that territory and he's going to take those demons and get a head start on that destruction that they know is coming. Verse 30. Now a good way off from there was a herd of many swine feeding. Now again, I told you we're going to home base Matthew chapter 8, but go back to Mark 5. And when you see the term many, at least in my mind, I start to say, well, how many? Uh, verse 11 of Mark chapter 5 starts that portion of the story. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountain, so that all the demons begged him, saying, send us into the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine, and then parenthetically it says, there were about how many? 2,000. Now, I don't know much about pigs, but when I hear 2,000, that seems like 
a lot. Okay? So there's this larger, they always just say a larger, a, great, a multitude of swine, you know, thousands of them are on the hillside. And uh, going back to Matthew chapter 8, our home base, verse 30, now a good way off from there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, which I mean, the jig is up, you're going to get cast out. But permit us, allow us, please let it be so. Do they recognize that they're only allowed to do what Christ permits? For sure. But they're asking him permission. Why? It's a great question. Why? Why not just go back to wherever demons live and start over or go haunt some new people or go somewhere? Why the pigs? What was their purpose in this? Well, let's keep going. Verse 32. And he said to them, Go. How kind it was of Jesus to grant the request of the demons. But he does. Instead of saying no, he says, go. So when they come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Must have been a sight to behold. <laughs> Don't know that. We're not told. <laughs> What is revealed is for us and our children and the secret things are for God. We don't know. But the question we're working with is in this, because we're talking about this chess battle back and forth. Christ has made advances. Satan's making counter moves. And now this conflict with the demons themselves. They recognize Jesus as Lord. They say, please don't torment us. In fact, if you cast us out, or they should better, when you cast us out, please let us go into the pigs. Do you think they had a purpose in going to the pigs? Sure they did. My guess is they think they're outfoxing Jesus here. And as soon as they get in the pigs, they run them all down the hill, off the cliff, blah, 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 drown the pigs. Look at verse 33. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told Everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Now, what is their job? The <laughs> they are missionaries. For whom? <laughs> the devil thinks they are his missionaries, right? That's right. Why do they go into the pigs? It wasn't because he hates pigs and wants to kill pigs. <laughs> but he wants to plant in their mind some dissatisfaction with Jesus, the, the swine herders would see it and run and give their testimony. And when they say, they told everything, including what happened to the demon-possessed men. But for them, their everything was the pigs. And oh yeah, the demons are gone, and the, demon, the men are free. Um, to me, the... By the way, I'm guessing every single thing they said was true, wasn't it? But watch the result of their testimony. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Amen. And when they saw him, they begged him to do what? To depart from the region. There's this chess match going on. Match. And... Um, 
There is the rest of the story, and we're getting to it, I promise you. But in Matthew chapter 8, the story ends there. In fact, it picks it up in chapter 9, verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. You could get the impression that Jesus lost. You could get the impression that Satan won. All right, fine, you lost. You, I'll have to surrender two demon-possessed men, but what I gained from it was a whole city who doesn't want you. It looks like Satan won. By the way, and, and we're getting there, we're getting there, friends, calm down. John chapter 4, just for reference, there was another example of someone who ran into the city and told everything that Jesus had done. And the whole city comes up and begs him to stay. What's the difference between the two testimonies? Both of them are completely accurate, but one results in everybody wanting Jesus to stay, and the other one wants everybody Jesus to go. Thank you. That's right. That's right. How that, how that testimony is given is important, okay? Um, the, the observers of the miracle of the pigs put the wrong spin on it. Instead of, he freed the demoniacs, they were saying, he killed our pigs. <laughs> Sometimes, and this is not the point that Mark was landing on, I just want to make sure we get this in here when we share our testimony. Sometimes even in sharing our testimony, the truth about Jesus, we can unintentionally give the impression that things were better before. Desire of Ages, page 338, says this, But the people who beheld this wonderful scene did not rejoice. The loss of the swine seemed to them of greater moment than the deliverance of these captives of Satan. Satan makes you think that the... This is my words now. Satan makes you think that the cost of fall in Christ is too high. I can't smoke. I can't drink. I can't swear. I can't fornicate. I can't lie. I might lose my job, my family, my, even my life. And, and, and Satan wants us to focus on the perceived loss, which is incidental at best, or fictitious in all likelihood. Jesus says, John 10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, they have it more abundantly. Things are better with Jesus. Steps of Christ, page 46. God does not require us to give up anything that it is for our best interest to retain. In all that he does, he has the well-being of his children in view, would that all who have not chosen Christ might realize that he has something vastly better to offer them than they are seeking for themselves. Man is doing the greatest injury and injustice to his own soul when he thinks and acts contrary to the will of God. No real joy can be found in the path forbidden by him who knows what is best and who plans through the good of his creatures. It is his purpose to impart peace and rest to all to come to him for the bread of life. He requires us to perform only those duties that will lead our steps to heights of bliss to which the disobedient can never attain." The true joyous life of the soul is to have Christ formed within the hope of glory. So happiness is not just something you're going to get someday and right now we have to drudge through this Christian life because I'm earning my heaven. Life is better now with Jesus. Keep that in mind. All right, but the crux that we're aiming for. Matthew chapter 8, we've exhausted the whole story, so now let's turn our attention to Mark 5, a very critical portion of the story. We'll start with verse 14 to overlap nicely, passing the baton from Matthew to Mark. 
So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting um, and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told him how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. Verse 18, and when he got into the boat, here's the distinction, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. You can imagine that's a very logical, reasonable request. Please take me with you. Don't leave me here. In all reality, we just met. And you've already been far nicer than anyone else I've ever known. Please take me with you. However, verse 19, Jesus did not permit him. Now, the word permit is used twice. And are you telling me he granted the demon's request, but did not grant the restored man's request? When his request is so simple, so reasonable, so loving, so endearing, please, I just want to stay with you. Show me more, teach me more, help Verse 19 again, however, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has compassion, has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Let's bring this to this point. That there's a couple reasons that I think Jesus left those poor men there. First of all, as an unentered field, Jesus needed frontline workers in Decapolis. There's just logistics. He was going there to spread the message and they were kick- asking him out. They were kicking him away. And he could just turn his back on the whole region and have no one there. He needed somebody there. Okay. Desire of Ages, page 340. The two restored demoniacs were the first missionaries whom Christ sent to preach the gospel in the region of Decapolis. Though the people of Gergesa had not received Jesus, he did not leave them to the darkness they had chosen. When they bade him depart from them, they had not heard his words. It's not like they evaluated everything that Christ did and said and then reasonably said, now we've chosen otherwise. They just heard the false report, were scared, didn't know what to do with them. They said, please leave. It's just too much. And Christ knew that. Forgive them. They know not what they do. Let's leave them somebody. They were ignorant of that which they were rejecting. Therefore, he again sent the light to them and by those to whom they would not refuse to listen. Jesus might be intense and these disciples might be, you know, something or another. But these two guys have a story to tell, and everybody knows their name. Again, you can picture the back and forth, the chess match. Jesus, I'll take the two demoniacs back. Satan says, fine, but I'll use the demons to drive their prized pigs into the sea. And Jesus says, no problem. All publicity is good publicity. (laughs) 
I'll leave the former demoniacs here as living examples of my power, and through your publicity stunt, thank you very much for your help, and their personal testimony, I'll win more souls than I could have otherwise. Listen to this. Desire of Ages 340. She comments directly on this. In causing the destruction of the swine, it was Satan's purpose to turn the people away from the Savior and prevent the preaching of the gospel in that region. But this very occurrence roused the whole country as nothing else could have done and directed attention to Christ. Christ took the bad billboard and said, yeah, I can work with that. I'll let you say whatever you want about me. In fact, tell as many people as you can how awful and terrible I am. Mention my name all around town. Tell them about what he did to these pigs and where those demons came from. Make sure you mention that part. Tell everybody. Though the Savior himself departed, the men whom he had healed remained as witnesses to his power. Those who had been mediums of the Prince of Darkness became channels of light, messengers of the Son of God. Men marveled as they listened to the wondrous news. A door was opened to the gospel throughout that region. And when Jesus returned to Decapolis, the people flocked about him. And for three days, not merely the inhabitants of one town, but thousands from all the surrounding region heard the message of salvation. Even the power of demons is under the control of our Savior, and the working of evil is overruled for good. Love it. That's point number one. Jesus needed logistics help, and he was playing this thing to a T. Everything that, you know, there's the idea that he can take the good, or the bad, and turn it into good, right? All things work together for good. Why did Christ permit it? He saw what they were trying to do, but he knew the next move. He's like, I know what you want to do, but I know what I'm going to do with you, what you want to do, and you can't see that far ahead. I'm going to run this thing. I love Jesus. Talk about the divine appointments. You don't know why you're going to talk to this person. You don't know what seed will work or not, but just go to work anyway. Christ has a purpose that someday we'll see. But for right now, ours is not to understand why. Ours is to obey. That's it. Now, secondly, so we've talked about how this helped Jesus' mission out, but it seems like a sacrifice for these poor men. Wouldn't they be personally better off with Christ? Now, counterintuitive as it may seem, staying away from Jesus was in their best interest. I know that sounds crazy, but hear me out. These men serve as an example that it is not deep theological theory, but rather deep personal experience that is the most needed in our Christian life. Learning less and sharing more would be of greater benefit than had they been permitted to learn more, but required to share less. I'm going to say that one again. It was a little wordy, okay? But think it through. Learning less and sharing more would be of greater benefit than had they been permitted to learn more, but required to share less. They could have an encyclopedic knowledge of God in theory, in doctrine, in truth, and it all been right, but it wouldn't have been as spiritually uplifting as it would to take the little bit you know and go put it to use. The demons who had possessed these men knew more about the Bible than the men themselves. They knew the prophecies, they could identify Jesus, they knew it was coming. But by accepting Christ by faith and experiencing true freedom, these men knew more about the God of the Bible, and their witness would be powerful. Desire of Ages, page 339. I promise we're coming in for landing. Here we go. In doing this work, 
That is the work of sharing their testimony, of leading people to Jesus through their little bit that they had. In doing this work, they could receive a greater blessing than if, merely for benefit to themselves, they had remained in his presence. Why do we go to church? Why do we come to camp meeting? Is it to be blessed? Which there's nothing wrong with being blessed, but is that our ultimate objective? Is to receive? Or are we here to get trained, equipped to go and do? And people say, well, I just need a blessing. Let me tell you something. There is no greater blessing than taking what you already have and sharing it with somebody else. And how many times people say, well, when I learn enough, you already know enough. I'm assuming that the vast majority, almost every one of you, perhaps every single person in here is a Seventh-day Adventist. And that alone, just by osmosis, okay, you know more about Scripture than 99.9% of the population out there. You already know enough. But why do we still feel like, I need a greater blessing, I need a better spiritual, I need something to feed. The feeding of you comes from the feeding of them. Listen to this. Again, in doing this work, they could receive a greater blessing than if merely for benefit to themselves, they had remained in his presence. It is in working to spread the good news of salvation that we are brought near to the Savior. If you want a closer walk with Jesus, lead someone else to Jesus. The very next page, 340 again. For a few moments only, these men had been privileged to hear the teachings of Christ. Now, we do get the idea that there wasn't just demons possessed and that was it. Remember, there was time at least for them to go into the swine, the swine to go, and then the people to run back and tell the story, and then the townspeople to come. And remember what Mark says, when they get there, they see them sitting in the right mind, talking with Jesus. So Jesus was giving them some instruction. It wasn't just a high five and out. There was some level of instruction. But it was like a, maybe an afternoon, maybe just an hour or two, maybe just a little sliver of time with Jesus. Hmm? A boot camp. <laughs> a boot camp, yes. We should have titled that, I like that. Boot camp. <laughs> For a few moments only, these men had been privileged to hear the teachings of Christ. Not one sermon from his lips had ever fallen upon their ears. They could not instruct the people as the disciples who had been daily with Christ were able to do. But they bore in their own persons the evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. They could tell what they knew, what they themselves had seen and heard and felt of the power of God. This is what everyone can do whose heart has been touched by the grace of God. She continues, as witnesses for Christ, we are to tell what we know, what we ourselves have seen and heard and felt. If we have been following Jesus step by step, we shall have something right to the point to tell concerning the way in which he has led us. We can tell how if we have tested his promise and found the promise true, we can bear witness to what we have known of the grace of Christ. This is the witness for which our Lord calls and for want of which the world is perishing. So yes, this is a condensed course. But for a few moments only, and hopefully not one sermon will fall on your ears. It'll be instructional, it'll be teaching, right? But I'm telling you, the information that you can get, even in a very short period of time, will be water to a thirsty soul. 
It will be bread for a famishing world. And to you it may be, oh, it's just a little thing, but to them it's the life rope, right? This is the thing. There's probably lots and lots of lessons to take away, but I wanted to drill those two home. Number one, Christ is the uh, commander of his work, right? He knows what obstacles you're going to face. He knows the results even before they've happened, okay? So trust in him and don't get caught up in like, oh, I have to perform just right or it's all on me. No, no, the results are on Christ, right? So don't sweat that. Your job is not to strategize. Your job is just to trust and obey. And the second point is, yes, get the, soak up the information. Listen to Audioverse a lot, right? Feed on the Word. Study the Bible. Go to seminars and sermons. That's great. But the greatest benefit for yourself and for the cause of God is not the reception of those things, but it's in the giving of those to others, that you will have a greater spiritual experience and you can make advances for the cause of God and by His grace, hasten the coming of Jesus. Did we all make sense today? Fantastic. Let's bow our heads for another word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of knowing you and the responsibility that comes from sharing you with others. Lord, as we start up another Emmanuel Institute training session, a boot camp, a a, a few moments only, help us to not despise the day of small beginnings. Lord, help us to take the small bit that we might have and put it to use and watch you do something marvelous with it. Lord, we know there are souls perishing every day, every hour, right in our own backyards. Help us to redeem the time. For many of us, we've been in this great prophetic movement called the Seventh-day Adventist Church for years, perhaps decades. And heaven forbid we've not even won one soul to Christ. Lord, let that change today. Let this be the day that we start to be witnesses for you. We'll be your messengers. And that by our humble efforts and your amazing grace, souls will be won and Jesus will come soon. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll take the wallet. Here's some money. Amen. Well, we're about to give you a break, but just before we do, we have to bring this home for a little uh, a little challenge. Um, first of all, my name is Jim Howard. I am the Evangelism and Personal Ministries Director, and I'm the brother of the Emmanuel Director. That's that guy back there. And by the way, ever since I was just a little boy, my much older brother has always tried to dress like me. It drives me crazy. <laughs> We really didn't plan that uh, outfit today. But anyway, I want to take you back with just a brief uh, appeal here. Take you back to about almost 20 years ago. It was Pennsylvania camp meeting. And Mark and I were both there. Uh, Neither of us even thought about being pastors at that time. But we were just attending camp meeting just like you trying to find those seminars that would really give us something so that we would know something of how to share our faith. And we went to a seminar by a gentleman by the name of Pastor Tony Cerigliano. 
Pastor Serigliano was a big, uh, fun New Yorker. I don't know, where, was he from New York? Yeah. And uh, he had a strong accent, and he just kept us spellbound. It was fantastic. But the very first day, he told us something that stuck with us and that I want to encourage you with before we take our break. He said to us, I can help you get a Bible study in a way that is nine times out of ten effective. Now, would you like to know a way to get a Bible study that is effective nine times out of ten? All right. I'm glad that five of you would like to know that. The rest of you, uh, just stay tuned. So, he called it Pastor Tony's Surefire Method. And we went through the first day and got to the end of the day and he said, okay, are you ready to hear Pastor Tony? We were like, yes, we're ready to hear Pastor Tony's Surefire Method. And Pastor Tony said, okay, here's what you do. You simply say to someone, hi, I'm taking a class on evangelism and as part of this class, they're wanting us to share our faith with someone, find someone that we can go through a series of Bible studies with. Would you be willing to help me out? Or would you be willing to do me a favor and be the one who goes through some, a series of studies with me? And we all listened to him and we're waiting. That's it? Yeah, that's it! Pastor Tony Surefire Method, who's going to try it? And uh, you were going to raise your hand, weren't you? No, I saw it. I saw your hand going up. <laughs> And about, I don't know, maybe seven, five, I don't remember how many it was, five, seven people, somewhere in that range, raised their hands. I didn't. I was, you know, I'm a little introverted, which I'll talk about later. But anyway, it was very interesting to see these raise their hand because he said, I'm right there. Okay, then before the night is over, I want you to call someone and use Pastor Tony Surefire Method and come back tomorrow and tell us how it went. I mean, right there on the spot. So sure enough, they went, came back the next day. And uh, this time he didn't wait till the end of class. He said, okay, who, who was willing to do Pastor Tony's Surefire Method? I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. And he had them raise their hand. The first person, yeah, da-da-da, and I asked them, and they said, yes. Oh, amen. The next person, oh, and they said, yes. Every one of them said yes. And they got a Bible study. So you know what Pastor Tony did. All right, who's going to do it tonight? Who's next? Who's willing to use Pastor Tony's surefire method? Well, I'm a little, you know, I'm not the most extroverted guy in the world, but I'm not a coward. And I had made up my mind that if this came to it on the second day, that I was going to do it. So I raised my hand. And I had been thinking about my little brother. Now, I had a very uh, worldly... My parents were having us until I was nine years old, but they left the church and I was very worldly. And my little brother is six years younger than me and my older brothers moved out. And so he, I was basically his only role model. I was converted at 22. So he basically had, I mean, I, I kind of felt a little guilty because I was the person he was looking up to and it was not good. And so now he was in the exact place that I was, only worse. And so I always had in my heart, you know, I really, I really should ask him. At the time he was... Dating a girl, he'd been dating for a long time, so I decided I'm going to ask him, my little brother. So, I went after class, sometime later that afternoon, I went to the payphone, tells you about how long ago it was, and I dialed him up, <laughs> no, I wasn't going that long, but I dialed him up, and I said, hey, Ron, yeah, listen, 
Uh, I'm at this uh, spiritual retreat. It's like this week-long retreat. We call it camp meeting with the church. And um, I'm taking this class on sharing your faith. And one of the things that they're encouraging everyone to do is find someone that would be willing to go through a series of Bible studies with them. And I thought of you and Danielle and thought maybe when I get back, I could set up something like that with you guys. Would you be open to that? To which he said, is this a trick? <laughs> that sounds about right. So I said, look, no, it's not a trick. If you're not interested, it's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll ask somebody else. And he said, no, I guess we'll do it. <laughs> oh, man, I was so on fire. I was so ready to go back and tell Pastor Tony. I did not want to be the first guy who got the no on Pastor Tony's Surefire Method. <laughs> So I went back and, you know, it was a good camp meeting and I went home and I didn't really know how to give a Bible study at that point uh, very well at all. I took the book Steps to Christ and highlighted texts in the chapters and went like chapter by chapter and started going through it. And uh, it's interesting because I just recently found a letter that I wrote to my little brother. It was right around that time. And uh, he kind of talked about, uh, or, or I referenced a conversation that I'd had with him where he had told me that he was actually, I could tell he was convicted by our study, but his girlfriend was not willing to move an inch. And he loved her, and he wasn't going to move an inch if she wasn't going to move an inch. And I kind of could see that, and sometimes you have to recognize that. I mean, I, I recognize that if I kept going, it's only going to make this uh, a little harder. So I ended up, Partway through the study, I gave them the, or I, you know, they already had the books, but I said, why don't you finish reading the book in its entirety, and then once you get through it, if you have questions or whatever, then we'll meet and go over it. I knew, that, I knew what that meant. They weren't really going to, but I knew that I couldn't keep going where I was because of the thing that was happening. So anyway, it's a sad story. That's it. Are we ready for our break? No, I'm just kidding. It's not the end. So then, a few years later... Uh, he had been dating this girl for several years. They were, for all intents and purposes, you know, just about married. But they finally decided to get married. And the month before they were going to get married, she broke up with him. And he spiraled, and it was an awful situation. He got more deep into the world than he had ever been before. And it was very scary for him emotionally and everything for all of us. But through that process, he met a girl in his circle of friends, and she ended up getting pregnant. And he comes to me one day and says, well, I know that you know that uh, Andrea's pregnant and you know we decided we're going to get married. But neither one of us want uh, the baby to um, have to live like we live. And we really feel like we need to take this baby to church. And he said, so will you tell her why we should go to church on Saturday? <laughs> so I said, well, before you decide where you're going to... Now, by the way, her brother was training to be a, a pastor, a, a youth pastor at the biggest non-denominational church in Columbus called the Vineyard. And so I knew there was going to be some pressure on her side too. So I said, you know what? Before you decide where you're going to go to church, wouldn't it make sense that you first 
decide what you believe from the Bible. So I said, you know, how would you feel if I just came over, we could do this like once a week, and we study out from the Bible? Uh, and he said, okay. Um, it was a long process because <laughs> we had to get through all sorts of things. And about a year and a half later, as a matter of fact, it was the day before, it was a Sabbath before the Sunday when I would pack up our truck and move to Michigan to start my full-time pastoral ministry in Michigan. I baptized my little brother and his wife, Andrea. First, I had to marry them, get through the open bar and all that. Then we had to get through other decisions and get them to the point where they were ready. So it took a year and a half. But uh, ultimately, both of them were baptized. And it all traces back to Pastor Tony's surefire method. I learned after Pastor Tony's surefire method that Pastor Tony was tricking us. (laughs) Because not long after that, I was teaching Sabbath school in church, and somebody came to my Sabbath school class, and afterwards she showed some interest, so I thought, I'm just going to talk to her. So I went up to her afterwards, and I said, you know, I could tell you really enjoyed the class. I just wanted you to be aware, we have like these topical Bible study guides. A lot of people don't know where to go in the Bible. There's so many, you know, it's so big, and they don't know if they want to know something on a topic, how to pull it all together. These pull it all together for you. They pull all the passages together, or a lot of them, and people love going through these, and they find out what the Bible says on all these different topics. And I like going through them with people, so if you'd ever be interested outside of church or whatever, I'd be happy to help give you a Bible study. And she said, I've been looking for something like that. And then it dawned on me. Pastor Tony really was tricking us. It's not really about how you ask. Huh? It's that you ask. The problem, the reason we don't get Bible studies as lay people is not that we don't have that perfect way of asking, although I'd encourage you to try Pastor Tony's method because it's a good one. But there are many more people out there who would be willing to go through Bible studies if we would just ask. And let me be be clear about this. You're not going to get a Bible study that you don't ask for. It's just not going to happen. Even if you follow up a BibleStudyOffer.com interest, you're going to have to go and and nine times out of ten, you're delivering a lesson or something. You're not going to ever get to the point where you're sitting down with them and going over that lesson unless you ask them. So, Who's going to try Pastor Tony's surefire method tonight? Oh, oh yes. Amen. She was like, wait a minute. I didn't know what the question was. Okay, right there. All right. Yes, we got another one and another one. All right, we're going to check it out tomorrow. Amen. We're going to see how it works for you. And uh, I know the Lord's going to bless you and the rest of you. um, You know, you're not cowards. I know you're not. So you're going to think about who could I ask? Who could I talk to? You know, I had to just mention this one last thing. I want to give you a break. Somebody came in today and they wanted to know what the class was about and they were really looking for people skills. She told me that she had followed up three BibleStudyOffer.com interests and they all kind of fizzled out. When they learned that we were Adventist or or they never even remembered signing up or whatever. And she just felt like it was her. She needed better people skills. And uh, I explained to her that no, that... If you read the parables of Jesus, you have to have good ground. And sometimes people are just not yet open to the truth, right? But I also told her, I said, if you want the highest possibility of having a good Bible study, don't just 
go to the people who found out from a bumper sticker or a billboard. But you probably have people who are visitors to your church, youth in your church, spouses of members in your church, or the spouse is not a member, or coworkers, or neighbors, or someone who you know who's acquainted with you already or acquainted with the church already that you could ask and you'll have a much better opportunity of having a study that will be ongoing all the way through. Okay? Are you... See, we're going to study about the topics and all that, and that's all good. But when you leave this place, you want to get a Bible study. You want to really be studying the Bible with someone. I'm telling you, it's by sharing that it becomes plainer to you. And I'm saying that based on inspiration. So I'm encouraging you that this is going to grow you like nothing else will grow you. In fact, we're told that ministers should teach church members that in order to grow in spirituality, they must carry the burden that the Lord has laid upon them, the burden of leading souls into the truth. Isn't that incredible? Christian service, it's either page 59 or 69. But anyway, I'm encouraged by all of you who are here, and I just want to pray one last blessing upon you, and we'll take a break. Father in heaven, as these who have made a decision to ask for a Bible study go to do so, I pray that you'll give them fruit from their efforts. And I pray for each one of us to grow and learn, not only as we spend time here at camp meeting, but especially as we go to share what you have given to us with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for camp meeting. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Lord, as we are seeking to understand your word better, uh, that we may be able to communicate it better, I would ask that your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, would guide us into your truth. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the challenges always in running an Emmanuel session with other pastors is that pastors are all preachers. And, uh, you know, I told Cameron, I, I gave him a time period because I knew that, that he would go a little bit beyond. I don't know. It's like 45. It was not 45. Yeah, I'm and then my brother Jim's like, yeah, I want to do this. It's going to be about five minutes. And it's all good. Uh, we just modify. It's, it's, I, tell, I tell people, and, and I'm telling you now, that as you get engaged in ministering to others, the number one rule in ministry is adaptability. Because you, you'll always have curves and uh, curveballs that you got to work through. Now, I want to share with you a statement that, that came to my mind as I was listening to, uh, I think, Pastor Cameron. This is found in Ellen White's book, Early Writings. And she talks about in the early formation of, of Adventist uh, doctrine how the, the um, pioneers, for lack of a better expression, of this church would come together and they would study, sometimes spending the entire night in study and prayer, to better understand the scripture. But listen to what it says here. Um, Often we remain together until late at night and sometimes through the entire night praying for light and studying the word. Again and again, these brethren came together to study the Bible. Now listen to this next part. In order that they might know its meaning and be prepared to teach it with power. It was never for just the purpose of knowing. It was always for the purpose of knowing and sharing. And I thought that was interesting. And then she talks about how, well, I'll just continue reading. 
When they came to the point in their study where they said, we can do nothing more, the spirit of the Lord would come upon me. I would be taken off in vision and a clear explanation of the passages we had been studying would be given me with instruction as to how we were to labor and teach effectively. And so right from the beginning, it was never just a matter of learning. It was always a matter of learning for the purpose of sharing. You find that in the early church. You find that even in the Old Testament. The problem with the Jewish nation, the failure of the Jewish nation is they hoarded the truth to themselves. And, uh, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm thinking back to our devotional this morning. For those who were there, the, the man who had the barns, plural, and he tore down his barns and built bigger barns. And we can talk about our stuff, but how often is that our barn full of truth? And we're going to, oh, I'm going to go to camp meeting. I'm going to feed myself with more truth. And I'm going to feed myself with more truth. Well, there's got to come a time where you take the stuff out of the barns and you give it to others. And that goes with the truth that we understand as well. So anyway, uh, I thought that was, what's that? That was early writings. I'm sorry. I should have given you a page number. Early writings. And that is actually in the, um, the introduction so it's in the introduction, page 22, paragraph 4, XXII. <laughs> so um, what we're going to get into now is I, I called this class Intro to Prophecy. I intentionally didn't call it more of what it is, Daniel 2. Because for a lot of Seventh-day Adventists, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to that other seminar now, and I'll come back because I've got Daniel 2 down cold. Well, there are some things that, that I want to explore a little bit when it comes to understanding and sharing Daniel 2. Uh, before I do that, I just want to tell you that a lot of what we're going to be doing in teaching the different doctrines is interspersed in all of the classes we go over is going to be included ways to teach it. So it's, it's part of it is knowing it and part of it is communicating it. Because you can't, when you're studying with somebody, I mean, look, Let's put it this way. There's no teaching in the Bible that we're going to fully grasp on this earth. I don't believe that. I don't believe that, that we're good. I mean, there's always something more to learn. And you maybe have found that. When you read through the Bible and you think you've got something down and then you read it again, or you hear a sermon on it, and then you hear another sermon, you're like, oh, I hadn't thought about that before. And it just keeps on. The Bible is, is the gift that keeps giving. <laughs> I mean, you keep getting things out of it. And so having said that, I'm not going to be able to give a study to somebody and exhaust the subject and cover everything where it's like, okay, no more questions. I know everything now. And so the question I've got to ask myself, and you've got to ask yourself is, what is it, since I can't share everything, what is it I'm really trying to communicate? And, and so as we're going through these different doctrines, we'll be highlighting on the, the essentials that people need to understand in each uh, doctrine. But at the heart of it, I want you to understand, some, I'll give you an example. I had a student from Emanuel Institute, one of our last four-month students. She's down at uh, Andrews University studying peach, uh, speech pathology now. And um, she got in, involved in a Bible study there with one of the students at Andrews. Now, this student is an Adventist. Girl grew up Adventist. She's been baptized in the church. But she's just had some struggles with her faith. And she wanted to go through some studies but she told this former student of mine that she didn't want to go through the doctrinal studies because she knew all the doctrines. And so my student is telling me this. Well, the thing is, she already knows the doctrines, and so she wants to study something different. I said, let me ask you a question. Is she keeping the Sabbath? 
Well, no. Is she, you know, we went through some practical things. In other words, no, she's not living out her faith. Don't miss what I'm about to tell you. Knowing the doctrine is not here. If you are not practicing it, you don't know it. And I want to share with you a statement from the General Conference Bulletin, something Ellen White said in 1901, she communicated to uh, our people in this whole, uh, it's also found in the 1888 materials. Now listen to what it says. Every soul in every conference, in every part of the Lord's vineyard, <laughs> who's that? <laughs> every soul in every conference, in every part of the Lord's vineyard, has the privilege of knowing the truth. But truth is not truth to those who do not practice it. Truth is not a theory. Bible truth is not something you can just know up here. In fact, you can never know it up here until you know it here. It's when we, how many of you have experienced this in your life when you, now you may have been learning the truth for the first time, but it wasn't until you had to make a decision to follow Christ. Let me rephrase that. I've told my church members this, that Christianity begins for you when your will confronts Christ's will and you have to yield it. And that, that could be in any area of your life. For one person, it's the, it's the people they're hanging out with. For one person, it's the person they're engaged to. For one person, it's the day they're worshiping on. It could be a different thing for every person, but at some point or another, you know, everybody in the world follows some of the Bible. Everybody. There's not a single person on planet Earth that doesn't follow some of the Bible. But that doesn't make them a Christian or a follower of Christ. You become a follower of Christ when your will and his will come head to head and you yield. Right? And when you yield to him, then you experience the truth. Right? And so it is with the people you study with. And so a lot of times I've had church members and like this young girl, she's studying this other. I said, no, she, this girl doesn't know the truth because she's not practicing it. And your goal in a Bible study is not just to give a person more head, and, head knowledge and information. The goal in giving studies and the, t in the, in the, in the key to your studies being successful is helping to lead somebody into the truth. Lead them into practicing, to embracing it, to knowing that this is something, I'm going to commit my life to Christ in this area. And so when you're going to give a study on any topic, there, here are some essential questions And I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have this in the handout, and I wish I had, but I came up with it afterwards. There's, here's some essential questions. You want to write these down. There's three essential questions that you want to, things you want to be asking yourself as you're going into a study on any topic. Number one, what is the reason you're giving the study? And this is still number one. What is the response you are desiring or expecting? In other words, why am I giving a study on Daniel 2 to somebody? Why am I giving a study on, on the Sabbath to somebody? Why am I giving a study on health? Why am I giving a study on the second coming and the, the signs of the second coming? Why am I giving that study? You're typically giving a study because you're wanting a person to receive it a certain way, to respond a certain way. You've got to be somewhat clear in your mind as to what your expected result is. is. Okay, so what is the reason you're giving the study? What is the response you're desiring or expecting? Do you want them, for example, I'm giving a study on the Sabbath because I'm wanting them to choose to honor Christ on his holy Sabbath day and experience the blessing of the Sabbath, right? 
I'm not just wanting them to know that, oh, that's interesting. In history, there was this change that took place. You know, oh, the Catholics did it. Well, I would expect that. I mean, I hear this stuff from people, and it's like, oh, I've got it. No, 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 I understand this. The seventh day is the Sabbath. I have a lady I studied with in uh, uh, Allegan, Michigan, and uh, she's like, oh, I, and she was convicted about the Sabbath and, and uh, to the point where she wasn't really going to church on Sunday, but she wouldn't go to church on Saturday because, in her words to me, Saturday is pajama day. That's when you sleep in late and you, you don't have to go anywhere. And so, you know, oh, I believe in the Sabbath, but I just can't. Look, if you believed in the Sabbath, you're not going to be like, Lord, I'm sleeping in today. Okay, there's something that to know that the seventh day is, is the, uh, the Sabbath day is not understanding what the Sabbath is about. And so, again, just emphasizing when, when you're giving a study, what is it? And you not, you'll have to wrestle some of this stuff through. Why am I giving this study? And you'll see why that's important in just a minute. That's question number one that you need to be considering. What am I expecting them to do with this study? Number two, what are the key points that establish the truth you're sharing? And that's one of the things we're going to be doing as we go through each doctrine is you'll have a lesson with 12 questions, 15 questions, 18 questions. But what are the key points that you're trying to establish? Usually there's three or four. There's not 18. There's not 15. So you're, all your different question answers in the study and the text you're looking up are usually trying to convey some main ideas that you're wanting to get across in a particular study. And this is where, for example, if you're giving a study on the, the uh, manner of Christ's coming, you're wanting to dispel the idea of the secret rapture. Now, there's a lot we could talk about with Christ coming and the manner of his coming. Why am I going to zero in on the idea of the secret rapture? Okay, what's that? Right, it, this, is, this is something that is disputed and people have a misconception. You want to clear that up. That's important to clear up. Now, I could talk about a lot of stuff that's, I don't want to say it's irrelevant to a person, but when you're giving a study, you're, the key points are you're trying to help to clear up where the error is. You know, one of the things, one of the key um, aspects of Christ's ministry was he would go and, 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 and the truths of the Bible had been all kind of covered up by the traditions of the leaders of Israel. There were still truth, but Jesus had to pull that truth up and get the error cleared away from it so the truth would shine more clearly. That's what you're doing in a Bible study. So your key points are generally going to be trying to establish that truth more clearly by clearing away the error and that kind of thing. And so you're going to want to know what the key points are. That's what we're going to be going over this week in the different areas of the studies. And then the last thing, the third question goes along with the first one. What is your appeal going to be at the end of the study? In other words, this is going to be, what am I going to ask them to do? Well, if you can't answer number one, you can't answer number three. Because number one, why am I giving this study? What do I want to see them do? Well, what I'm going to be asking them at the end of the study is basically to do what the whole purpose is of, of giving this study is. So if I'm giving a study on the Sabbath, and my purpose in giving that is I want to see them embrace the Sabbath and enjoy that blessing the Lord intended for them, then when I come to the end of the study, I'm going to ask them, you know, is there, what would keep you from committing yourself to honor Christ on his holy Sabbath day, right? It's going to go along with the reason I'm giving that study. I don't want to get done with a study and have them saying, hmm, that was interesting, and move on. And the reason I'm bringing that up, yeah, question. 
Number two is, what are the key points that establish the truth you're trying to present? Um, yeah, I run into this, uh, and we're running into a lot with Bible study offer. As, as we meet once a month in our church with those who are giving Bible studies, whether the Bible study offer or, or some other kind, so that we can have, they have some point of contact, ask questions, we do a little training and that kind of thing. But one of the things I'm seeing a lot of is, well, I've gone out to this, you know, for example, how many of you have run on Bible study offer interests? You've gone out with an interest card to follow up somebody. And, you know, some of them will say, you know, just some of them just want you to keep dropping off the lesson. Um, it can be harder to get in home and get the in home study started. We've had a lot where people will run, the church member will go back and the person is, um, you know, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here with the Bible study offer. I brought lesson number two. Oh, I didn't get lesson number one done yet. I really haven't filled it out or I lost it. Or this. And this will go on and on and on. Every week you're going back and the person hasn't even touched the lesson. Anybody running into this? Now, there are, I'm not going to get into all the, there, there are ways around that. But part of what's happening is there, there, they, there needs to be encouragement in the direction of, you know, I've had members ask me, so what do I do? I've been four times the house or whatever. I said, look, if I'd been four times the house and the person hasn't filled the lesson out, I'm going to be having a conversation with them and just saying, look, I'm, you haven't filled out the lesson I've come by. Is this something you're not interested in? Is it, sometimes, I mean, we're so afraid to even have a conversation like that. Look, they requested the studies. If I'm going for studies and they haven't filled it out, we're going to have a little conversation. Yeah, I'm just wondering, is this what you're interested in? Or is, is there something else you were looking for maybe? Then, and that will give a little bit of direction. But at the end of the day, when you're giving a study, the purpose for giving the study is that the person follow the truth. You don't follow the truth, it's not truth to you. It's never going to be, a per you don't get the truth with head knowledge. You get it by practice. And if you've experienced the truth, and you've experienced the validity of Jesus' words, the truth will make you free. You'll want other people to have that freedom. Isn't that true? You'll want them to have that freedom. And so as you're communicating, you don't want just knowledge. You want to walk them into understanding and embracing the truth. Now we're going to talk about prophecy starting specifically with Daniel 2. Most lesson sets like these will start in the first few lessons, if not the very first lesson, with a study on Daniel chapter 2. Okay, you wear that? Why do you think that is? Why do we start with Daniel 2? To establish the, uh, the authority of the Bible as a uh okay so he says it establishes the authority of the bible what happens if i've given if i'm giving bible studies to a person who really doesn't believe that the bible is the word of god take your bible and go with me to john 17 for a minute i want you to grasp something here that just hit me a few years ago i mean i'd read this text for a long time but this really uh impacted me john gospel of john chapter 17 this is christ's prayer in john 17 and i want you to look at verse 17 this is a very well-known verse and probably familiar most of you are familiar with it John 17, 17, Jesus says as he's praying to his father, what? 
Sanctify them by your truth. Your what? Your word is truth. Now, when I ask if you have a marginal reading, does anybody know what I mean by that? Most Bibles will have your text and, your, and you'll have a center column margin and it'll have little notes and it might have a, a, an A or a B or it might have a little number and say something. And if you don't have it in the center column, sometimes you have it here along the bottom. Now, I have a marginal note on verse 17. Does anybody have a little number by the word sanctify? Okay, some of you have that. Now, what, what happens is, like, I have, a sanct I have the word sanctify, and I have a little number one. And what this is doing is, in my margin, it's going to tell me what the, uh, either an alternative word or the actual original word is here. So sometimes it gives you a little bit more of a sense of what it's trying to say. Now, I could have asked you that. I probably would have saved time by just asking you what the word sanctify means. But a lot of times people will say, when I ask sanctify, it's like sanctify means to make holy, which is kind of true. Is what is your marginal? Set them apart. Set apart, right? And that's really the literal reading for the word sanctify. In other words, to, to sanctify is making something holy by setting it apart from other things, right? The Bible talks about the sacred and the common. The sacred or the holy is set apart from things that are unholy. Now, Jesus prays to his Father, and he's speaking about us, his followers, his followers then and his followers now, all the way through into the future. And he says, Father, I want you to set them apart by what? Your truth, your... Your what? Your word is truth. So Jesus says, I want you, Father, to set them apart by your word. Let me ask you a very simple question. How are people set apart by the word? How does the word set you apart? Let me rephrase it. How can the word set you apart from others? Okay. Now I'm hearing a lot of real passive, like by believing, by knowing the truth. No, 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 no. By living in accordance with it. If I listen, if I read this and I hear it, is that setting me apart? Now sure, if I believe it, you know, we know belief includes acting on it, but that's the point that I want to make is the word cannot set anybody apart who doesn't follow it. It's when I read the word and it says, remember the seventh day, right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it. And I read that and I, and I say, I'm going to follow that. Now suddenly I'm out of step with those who don't, right? I'm set apart. We are set apart by practicing the truth. And so Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. If I'm studying through the Bible, does the Bible challenge us in the way that we live? Is there anybody who can read through the whole Bible and, it's, and not come to some point where it says, you know what, you ought to change this? Is there anybody who can do that? No, sooner or later, somebody's going to run into something and say, oh, I didn't know that was in there, right? And now what? Now, now, now I'm faced with a dilemma, maybe. But what happens if I don't accept the Bible as God's word? That's where we part company, right? 
Like I'm going along and I'm like, this is good. And this is where your person who's studying the Bible with you, they're all together until you come to that part and it's, it's addressing something in their life. And they're going to be like, well, you know, I'm not sure I agree with that part. You know, I mean, after all, the Bible was written by men or, by, you know, and this is where people, this is why it's important that a person that you're studying with come to a point early on that they accept the Bible as the inspired word of God. Until they do, the Bible can't impact their life. Because when they come to that part where it would impact their life, they'll say, ah, you know, I don't agree with that. But when you receive this as, wow, this is God's word to me, now I'm not just wrestling with the person giving me the study. When I come to something that confronts me in my life and the way I live, now I'm wrestling with God. Wow, this is God's word to me. What am I going to do with that? And so early on in any Bible study series, you're going to want to establish the authority of Scripture. Well, how do you do that? People will say, and I hear it a lot, well, the Bible is just written by men. Well, that's true. It was. But the Bible says holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. But how do I convey that to somebody with conviction? And the answer is prophecy. This is why Seventh-day Adventists spend the time we do in prophecy. And it really kills me when people will tell me, people will say, oh, you guys, are. we need to talk more about Jesus. And we're always talking about prophecy. Now, listen, we can talk about Jesus, in a, we can talk about prophecy in a way that we're not including Christ, and I'm not advocating that. But I want you to understand that when you're communicating the truths of prophecy, it brings people face to face with Christ like nothing else can. And here's why. You remember the woman at the well? You remember when... Uh, they're having this dialogue, she and Jesus, by that well of water. And she says, you know, Jesus is like, look, I'll give you living water. And she says, who are you? Is he greater than our father? Jacob, he drank from this well. You got some other well. And they have this, this dialogue. And then Jesus, you know, tells her, he kind of entices her with the living water. And she says, give me this water. And Jesus said, go and call your husband. You remember that? And, and then what happened? <laughs> What well, if things turned around a little bit then? Go and call your husband. Well, you know, you know, I don't have a husband. And he said, you've spoken rightly that you don't have a husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you're living with isn't your husband. Well, that's a little personal, right? <laughs> a little uncomfortable situation. But you, you know, we don't get it as much in the story, but I'm going to tell you what, that re the fact that she continued the conversation with him tells us that his demeanor, even in communicating that, was of such a way that she sensed that he wasn't being critical of her. But he didn't know things. And what, was she, what, what struck her in that conversation? What do you think? How did he know? Yeah, there was, there was an evidence to her in that moment of divinity. And that changed her, didn't it? She left her water pot and went back to her village when it was all said and done. Okay? When you share prophecy and people see that prophecy, that was something predicted was fulfilled just like God said it, they receive a flash of divinity. Suddenly, the Bible is not just a book written by men. It's the Word of God. That's why it's so powerful. Suddenly, they come face to face with Jesus. Another place that comes to my mind is, you remember when, when Peter was on the boat, the fishing boat, Luke chapter 5, and the Bible said he'd been out all night fishing and hadn't caught anything 
right? And you, just so you understand this, okay? Fishermen who fish with nets fish at night. Fish have eyes on both sides of their heads, okay? They see everything. You can't pull one over on a fish. You fish at night. You don't drop the net in the daytime. Peter knew this. His partners knew this. They're out all night. They're fishing in the clear waters of the lake. The fish, they catch nothing. Now it's daytime. He's discouraged. Jesus comes out. He teaches on the boat and he turns to Peter and he says, now let's go out into the deep and let's let down the nets. And I'm just paraphrasing here because this is Pastor Mark's paraphrase. Peter tells Jesus, look, Lord, I'm a carpenter. You're a fisherman. Uh, I'm a fisherman. You're a carpenter. You stick to carpentry and I'll stick to fishing, right? We've been all night and we try to catch we didn't catch any fish. We're not going to catch them today. There's this little dialogue that goes on. And then Peter says this, nevertheless, at your word, nevertheless, at your word, we'll go out. Jesus must have been persistent. He probably just was looking at Peter. Peter's giving his explanation as to why it's impossible, right? Like we do with the Lord. Lord, it's impossible. The Lord says, okay, now will you go and do what I said? You know, so he, nevertheless, at your word, the Bible says they go out and what happens? They throw the nets in the water. And you remember what the Bible says? In Luke 5? What's the first? Anybody remember the word the Bible uses? Immediately. Immediately, the net was full of fish, so full that they began to draw it in, and what happened? It was too, too much, and they did what? They called the other boat, so they get two boats, and they pull it into both boats, so both boats are trying to carry this net, and both boats began to what? Sink, the Bible says. I mean, we can't catch fish all night. And all of a sudden, bam, immediately, so full. And they're pulling it in and the boats are sinking. And you remember what Peter does? Now, this is a time of crisis, right? The boats are sinking. We need laborers. You got to be on hand right now. Have your conversation with Jesus later. No, what does Peter do? He falls down at his knees before Jesus and throws his arms around him. He says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Now, this is the same one who was arguing with him a minute ago, saying, basically, you're a carpenter and I'm a fisherman. But something changed in that moment because Peter saw the divinity of Christ and he realized he was in the presence of one who held all the forces of nature in his hands. That's why you're here, because you experienced Christ that way. Right? That's what you want your Bible study. That's what prophecy does. And sometimes we talk about prophecy in such a... I've heard Seventh-day Adventists talk about prophecy in such a kind of like, a, it's such a, uh, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's not relational, it's, it's, it's informational, it's all, no, prophecy, yeah, prophecy is what, when you see it fulfilled, you remember the woman at the well, she went out to her villagers, what did she tell them? Come see a man, What? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like this one relationship or this your five relate, whatever, that's all you ever did? She said, come see a man who told me all I ever did. No. What she was saying is this, and you can relate to this. When you first got a vision of Christ, what came through your mind? It's like your whole life passes before you as you're in the presence of the Savior. All my, I remember all my sin just came up in my mind. Nobody brought it up. The Spirit of God just enlightened and illuminated my mind, and I was in the presence of the Lord. I was sitting in my living room with my wife. I was reading the book, The Great Controversies. I was reading, and I have this, I guess it's a bad habit, but I still do it. I don't read cover to cover oftentimes. I pick, especially out of the conflict. I mean, the chapters are so packed. So I had pulled out the book, Great Controversies. I'd never read through the whole book before. I was reading a particular chapter in that book about the coming of Christ the first time. It's called Heralds of the Morning. 
And it talks about the prophecies and what have you that predicted his second coming, but it goes back to the first coming. And it talks about how the angels of God were, it was about time for Christ to be born. How all through the ages, there was this buildup to this event when the foretold Messiah would come. And now the angels of God are going through Jerusalem and they're looking around to see among God's people who was waiting for and expecting the coming of the Messiah with all the prophecies that foretold it and everything else. And nobody's expecting it. They're all indifferent. They're all careless. They're all tied up and absorbed in their, oh, there's a lot of parallels that could be drawn. But I remember reading through that, sitting on my couch, it was a Sabbath afternoon, and thinking to myself, those in, ungrateful people, those Jewish people, what were they? And I, I mean, I was just, I, I, I was getting angry at the, at the, 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 the ignorance and the, I mean, the, 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 the resistance of the Jewish nation. Rejecting Christ. And, and the chapter goes on to talk about how Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The angels were about to return to heaven, Ellen White says, with the sad tidings that nobody's interested when their eye caught some shepherds out in a field talking about, could this be the time that the Messiah would be born? What, they found an expecting company and boom, the angels of God, all the all heaven lights up, right? Glory to God in the highest. The shepherds are, fear not. The angels give this message, and, and, I, and I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, those, you know, Jesus, in fact, the, the, the words that really hit me were, were in that, that, in that uh, chapter. It talks about Joseph and Mary, how before the shepherds, how they traveled through the streets of Jerusalem. They were there for the um, taxation for the census, right? To the, what did I say? <laughs> Bethlehem, thank you. So they, and, and, she, and this is what the words say, that they traveled the narrow uh, length of the street from one end of town to the other, vainly seeking rest. And finally, in a wretched hovel prepared for cattle, the Savior of the world is born. And in that chapter, it describes all the glory that Christ had in heaven. And you're getting the sense of all the glory he deserves and then he comes through and his people turn him out. Nobody opens their doors. And he's born in a wretched hovel prepared for cattle. Jesus deserves more than this. And I, I was so incensed at that, so angry at that. How could they turn him out like that? And then the Spirit of God just put his finger on my heart as a young man who grew up knowing the truth. And I wasn't practicing it, living away from the Lord. And it's you have turned me out. You're the one who hasn't opened your door to me. And all my life, all the things I ever did, Right? Like that woman of the well passed through my mind and I had an encounter with Christ. And that's what happens when people, you share prophecy with people, they see something awakens them to the divine nature of the Bible and the author of the Bible. And uh, that, is, that, that is what establishes a person, in the, in, gets them even in the mode to where now they can start receiving from the Lord. And so sometimes we sell prophecy short, but that's why we spend the time we do on Daniel 2. That's why we spend the time we do on Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 and all of these things. And it's not to bash Catholics. It's not to bash other world empires and whatever else. It's to show people how there is a God who is in control of everything, who's predicted it and it's come to pass. And that same God who has the finger on the pulse of the nations has his finger on the pulse of your life. So Daniel 2 is a prophecy that we like to call a foundational prophecy. Because when you start going through what we call apocalyptic, there, there are two kinds of prophecy in the Bible. 
two main kinds. The one is called classical prophecy. And classical prophecy is generally local and literal. So, for example, when God spoke through Jeremiah about the coming invasion of the Babylonians, it had to do with them then and there. It was a local application. It was a literal application. The Babylonian armies that were going to come in didn't symbolize somebody else or something else. It was, it was a, a local, literal application. But then there is what we call apocalyptic prophecy. The word for the book Revelation, you, read the, you go turn to Revelation, you read the word Revelation. If you read the Greek, the title is Apocalypsis, and that's where it comes from. Apocalyptic prophecy is generally um, universal and symbolic. So you have all the symbols, and are the two primary books in the Bible of apocalyptic prophecy are Daniel and Revelation. And it's, it, of course, the local and literal are interesting as well, but they're a lot more relevant to the people of that time period, especially now that we're past the Babylonian invasion. But the apocalyptic prophecies have a lot to do with us, and as we see the fulfillment and the predictions and the fulfillments, then that gives us confidence in, in the Word of God. So Daniel and Revelation, we spend a decent bit of time there. Well, Daniel chapter 2, that prophecy of the image, that prophecy, every other prophecy that we look, just about apocalyptic prophecy that we look at, builds on that framework. And so when we get into Daniel 2, Daniel 2 is a key, found, it sets a key foundation for understanding prophecy. More importantly, one of the most fascinating things with Daniel 2, how many of you have studied through Daniel 7 and Daniel 8? And, and how, how many of you have ventured through Daniel 10 through 12? <laughs> and you get into all this more detail. Daniel 2 is a very basic prophecy, very simple framework. Okay, so when you're teaching somebody, it's easier to teach. It's a very, it, it doesn't have a lot of detail to it. And what's really amazing about Daniel 2 is you can take a secular ancient world history book and verify everything that is foretold in Daniel 2. So if I'm studying with somebody who doesn't believe the Bible, for example, if I want to talk about the prophecies of the Messiah, there's some really interesting prophecies that foretold the coming of the Messiah. And I can go to the Bible and I can find the prophecy, and then I can go to the Bible and find the fulfillment. But if you're studying with somebody who doesn't believe the Bible, that's circular reasoning, right? You're using the Bible to prove the Bible. But when I go to Daniel in it, uh, there are secular sources that verify some of those things about the Messiah, but not to the degree like a Daniel 2 will. I can go to Daniel 2 and see that God predicts the rise and fall of four world empires from the time of Babylon. We'll look at this a little bit more in the Bible in a minute. And then the breakup of that fourth empire and the, try to, the, the, the efforts to reunite that. I, I can look at that in the Bible in a prophecy that was written in 600 B.C., and then I can go to a secular history book written by a person who doesn't believe anything about God or the Bible that tells me that that's exactly what happened in history. That there were four world empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. That that fourth empire was divided, it wasn't conquered, divided up into ten parts, and those parts tried to reunite, and it became modern Europe, tried to reunite over and over and over again, but the Bible said they would not cleave together, and here we are today, and still they have not cleaved together despite the many attempts and future attempts. And so in a short, 
thumbnail sketch, Daniel 2 gives you a prediction of what's going to happen in the world. And a person can go outside the Bible and see that the Bible has told very accurately what would happen. And I'm going to tell you, I shared this Daniel 2 prophecy in my first church in Michigan. Had a guy that was attending who grew up Christian reform. And sometimes you study with people that are very interactive and expressive. And you're t you share stuff and like, oh yeah, and they talk back and they're wow. And then you have those people that are just kind of, they're just kind of, maybe you get a nod, but that's about the best you get. So, you know, you don't know exactly where they are. And this is how this guy was. He was a, uh, a, a executive here in Michigan, he had a six-figure salary and a successful business and young guy, grew up Christian reform. So I'm studying through Daniel 2, not a lot of kind of trying to figure out where he was. And I remember getting through the study, finishing the study, getting to the last question. And so I said, so what do you think? And he pauses and he looks at me and says, this is incredible. Why haven't I, why haven't I ever heard this before? And where was it? Did I hear somebody say that here this morning or last night or somewhere else? Maybe Pastor West had shared. You'd be surprised. No, no, no. It was the testimony you showed last night, Daniel 2. Seventh-day Adventists think everybody knows Daniel 2. We all know it. Oh, yeah, the image. We're all familiar with that. You know how many Christians don't know anything about Daniel 2? This guy had grown up in the Reformed Church, been active in the Reformed Church. He's like, this is incredible. I've never heard this before. Why aren't we telling everybody? That's what he said to me. I'll never forget that. It was eye-opening to him, and because, again, it's verifiable by outside or extra-biblical sources. So the reason that we, we, we share the prophecies is it gives people confidence in the Bible, in the God of the Bible. It gives them evidence to rest their faith on, right? The Lord doesn't expect us to believe without evidence, and prophecy is one of the strongest evidences God gives us that he is who he says, right? Um, a lot of studies on Daniel 2, including mine, includes Isaiah 46. Turn there with me. Isaiah 46. And look at verse 9. This is really an interesting passage. Isaiah 46 and verse 9. Bible says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and what? There is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So God sets out right here at the beginning of this verse and says, look, I'm God uniquely. There's none other like me. Now he's about to give us the reason that he's making this claim. And there's probably a lot of reasons that he could give, right? We could go, well, he's God because of this and because of this and because of this and because of this. Because he's creator, we can bring that up. Because of, but notice what he says. I am God, there is none other, uh, none like me. Um, verse 10, declaring what? The end from the beginning and from ancient times. What, what would that mean? Just from previously, from, behold, but from before. From, from ancient times, things that are not yet done. What's, that? what's, what's he talking about? He's talking about predicting, right? He's talking about prophecy. So God could say anything. There are a lot of things he could, I'm the creator, but he doesn't say that. He says, this is what makes me different. I can predict the future and it happens just like I say. And so this, when, when we study prophecy, it's an evidence that God has given to people, to humanity of uh, who he is. 
that we can trust in him. So let's look at Daniel 2 specifically here. Let's turn our Bibles. Now, when you give a study on Daniel 2, again, most of your studies are going to run the same course. I look at the, in fact, you might want to pull this one out because I'm going to run through it quickly after I make some explanation. The first lesson in this set, Can God Be Trusted?, is a lesson on Daniel 2. And just have it ready because I'm going to refer to that. But I want you to open your Bibles to Daniel 2. Now, Daniel 2 is a different kind of study because it's what we call a narrative. Okay, that just means instead of going from one verse to another topically, where you're looking at what the Bible says on a certain topic, you're reading through a passage. And so it makes for a different kind of study. I'm not jumping around in the Bible so much as I'm going, you know, right through this story. And I'm going to tell you that if you're going to sit down and give a study on Daniel 2, you're probably not going to have the time to go through and break down the whole chapter. There's really a lot in the chapter that sets up the story. Which I don't think because one of the things that frustrates people is when you jump from passage to passage and they cannot find it because they're not familiar with the scripture. Yeah. Whereas here, when you're there, you're there. Yeah, for a first study, it's great because you're not going around too much. You're t it's right. People, a lot of people are not real familiar with their Bibles. I'm going to take this off of here. And I'm going to write up on the board, before I go through this, four key points that I want to convey when I'm giving a study on Daniel 2. Okay, so this lesson, let's see, what do we have here? This lesson has 16 questions. I don't have 16 key points that I'm trying to make in Daniel 2. What is, what is it that I'm wanting to establish in my study of Daniel 2? Number one, and you'll see, I'll explain each one of these. Number one, I want the background and the setting of this prophecy. That is going to be important when I'm teaching it. And I'll explain each one of these. Number two, I want to show how this prophecy predicts four empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. That's what that means. Saving my time to sell some writing time. Uh, I also want to go over how the prophecy predicts Rome's division and subsequent failed efforts to reunite. And lastly, I want to show how in the prophecy it says that in the days of divided Europe, Christ will return and establish his kingdom. And I would put eternal kingdom, except for I don't want to keep writing. And I'll flesh each one of these things out. Now, there are applications that will be made when you give this study. 
but you can't make the applications. You know, in other words, I'm wanting at the end of this study, I'm not wanting them just to know that the Bible foretold Babylon and Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome. I'm wanting them to believe that the Bible is God's word, that it can be trusted, that God knows the future and everything else. But I can't convey that properly if they don't get this. So when we're talking about key points in a study, we're or a particular doctrine, we're talking about what needs to be clear in their mind to make the application that you're wanting to make. There are details in Daniel 2 that I could throw up a bunch of other details on here that would be neat, interesting side points. But these are the points they have to understand if we're going to make the application and they're going to see that divinity of Christ in the prophecy where they have that aha moment and realize, wow, the Bible foretold the future and it happened just like the Bible said. Okay, So those are my key points. Now here's how I'm going to go about that. In Daniel chapter 2, you'll notice there's a lot that I'm, I'm saying in this first session that will be kind of... It's going to go with the rest of the sessions. They're kind of introductory for all the studies that we're going to be talking about and all the things that you give. But all of your studies have an angle. For example, when we do the Law of God study, when I present the Law of God in an evangelistic series, which is you know, similar, a lot of times you'll set the study up. Like, what approach am I going to take? So I've taken the approach of morality sometimes, that this world is immoral, Right? The Bible predicted it. Second Timothy uh, tells us that in the last days, perilous times would come. Men would be lovers of themselves, boastful, proud, covetous. You may be familiar with that passage. Lovers of pleasure more than lover of God. Uh, all of these things, the Bible's talking about the last days of it being a very immoral society. So sometimes I'll take that angle and I'll say, why is it so immoral? How do we know what's right and wrong? How do we, what's our standard of morality? Well, the world doesn't seem to have a standard of morality. Everybody's standard is different. You say one thing, I say another thing, they say another thing. But God has a standard of morality, a moral compass, if you will, and that's the Ten Commandment Law of God. So sometimes I'll use that to lead into the study on the Law of God and the importance of the Law of God. But that isn't the study itself. And the reason I bring that up is you'll get into certain lessons, and there are always a few verses that may bring you into the main points. Okay? There's a framework. I may come into the main point by going to Isaiah 46 and, and that we just read and showing how you know, God gives prophecy as an evidence. And usually there are a few other passages I'll go into and so we'll say, so let's jump into this prophecy and see how it works. You need to understand that when you're, when you're, it comes to giving studies because you'll notice that every lesson you get into is going to take an approach, but when you get into the core of the lesson, you're going to be down to the same basic points. Okay? And if you get into writing your own studies, you're going to probably do something similar, where you're going to say, what angle am I going to present this from, and that kind of thing. And you'll, that'll, the more studies you give, the more that will, you'll understand uh, uh, what I'm saying there. Now, I want to jump into Daniel 2, but I'm going to give you five minutes before I do that. So anyway, let's take five minutes, and then come back here, and then we'll jump into Daniel 2, and we'll go through the high, I'll explain these points here. Okay, folks, we want to get back at it because we're, we're close to wrapping up. I had a very good question during the break, and actually it's been repeated, so I want to spend our time with that. I'm going to start with prayer. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me, please. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you so much again for the privilege we have of coming together to study. And we ask again for your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, to guide us into truth. Give us clarity of understanding and confidence in your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Now, the question came up. So I want you to take your binder. I want to point out something in the binder. Um, the beginning section of the binder... Just the uh, first front and back page is the outline for a presentation I gave at GYC this year. You can go to audioverse.org and get a copy and you can listen to the whole thing or you can just go over the notes. I mean, the notes are pretty clear, but if you want more explanation, uh, you can get that on Audioverse. Now, if you keep turning, uh, I'm going to explain the, the, the Bible docs, marking, lesson codes and all that stuff. That should be on like your third page in. I'm sorry, the, the, the studies aren't numbered because it's, they're, they're, they're put in here as... Um, the way I, I printed my Bible Doc studies is you can do it on a front and back piece of paper, and then I'll have notes that might go along with it. And that first one you'll see in the... So you'll see an index on the left of all the Bible Doc studies that are in here. And then you'll see the first Bible Docs 101, Daniel 2, you can trust the Bible. Do you see that? It's just a few pages in. Okay. Now you'll notice at the beginning of every Bible Doc study, I have texts at the top that are used in the study. That's for marking purposes. I'll explain that later on, not this morning. Um, then you have the study itself, which is a question-answer study. Remember I told you I usually start with Isaiah 46. You see it there. Now if you go past that, there's a section called Difficult Texts and Objections. You see that? Okay. And the first question was, or the objection that's brought up is Daniel wasn't written by Daniel or Daniel was written later. Okay. This is a common challenge. And we're going to do this with each topic we look at. There are, for some studies, you won't have a lot of challenge or a lot of objections to it. But there are certain studies, like when you get into the Sabbath and the law, there's all kinds of them. We'll look at a lot more. There's not a lot that comes up on Daniel, but there are a few. And this is one of the ones that comes up. People will say, well, look, Daniel, here's the thing. You're going to show me how Daniel predicted the rise of and fall of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome and then Rome's division. Well, the reason is that Daniel wasn't written by Daniel, it was written by somebody else later on who pretended to be Daniel, and he actually was just writing history that had already happened. How many of you heard this before? Okay, now, there are a couple ways to easily disprove this. First of all, and I've done this with people, the people will say, well, you know, Daniel was written by Daniel. Critics have come up, even, even uh, I should be careful in <clears throat> saying that. Why do you think people make that challenge. I want you to think about it for a minute. Why would somebody say that? Okay, what's another way if you don't want to believe? In other words, if, what's another argument you could give? What's the easiest argument you could give against Daniel if you didn't believe it? Here's a prediction that the Bible said would happen. What's the e That it didn't happen, right? Ah, that's hogwash. That never happened. Why aren't they giving that argument? Because it did happen. It's one of the strongest evidences in favor of Daniel 2. The critics can't even come up with the argument that says it didn't happen because it did happen. So they got to come up with, say, okay, the only other explanation is that it couldn't have been written before it happened. It had to be written after. But there's a big problem. 
And that big problem is the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. See, because the Dead Sea Scrolls found copies of Daniel that were in existence in 200 BC. Okay? So, the critics, the best they can do is say that the book of Daniel was written in the 2nd century BC. Because we have it. We have it. We have the evidence. Okay? Now, we don't have a copy that we can prove existed in 600 BC when Daniel lived. But we have 200 BC, and when you're in 200 BC, you still have much of the prophecy yet unfulfilled. So sometimes I'll give the person, the person will challenge me, I'll say, look, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Let's just say it was written in 2nd century BC. How would the author that you say isn't Daniel have written everything that he did beyond 200 BC and been pinpoint on it? It's accurate. Because it's prediction. It says the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls throw around, they can't put it later than 200 BC. And so even if it was written in, as late as 200 BC, you still have the rise and fall of the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the division of the Roman Empire, and the attempts to pull back the kingdom together, which we'll cover in just a minute. Okay, so there's a couple other evidences. Now that's, that's from, that's from archaeology. Biblically, Jesus in Matthew 24 says in Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the guy who wrote the book of Daniel. Anybody know the text? Look it up. Is that what Jesus says? He doesn't say, that's right. He doesn't say by the guy who wrote Daniel. He says by Daniel the prophet. So Jesus attests to Daniel's authorship of Daniel. Now here's the, to me, this is one of the funniest ones. And these are all listed here. You have them all listed here at the top in that difficult, in that first answer. Critics will argue that Daniel, here's one of the biggest arguments. Daniel couldn't have been written by Daniel himself. Now you have to understand that Daniel, the book of Daniel, how many of you know what language the Old Testament was written in? Okay, primarily Hebrew. Okay, in the New Testament, Greek, but portions of the Old Testament were written in Aramaic. Okay? And Daniel, from Daniel chapter 2 all the way to Daniel chapter 7, was written in Aramaic. And I'll cover that significance a little bit later this week. But they argue, the critics will argue this, that the language, the Aramaic language, you know languages change over time. And the Aramaic language that Daniel used was not 6th century B.C. Aramaic. It didn't match. And so Daniel couldn't have been written by Daniel in the 6th century because the type of Aramaic he used did not match the language in use at that time among the common people. Now that's what the critics will tell you. Now I'm going to tell you what they leave out. Okay, here's what they leave out. Neither does it match 2nd century Aramaic. You know what it does match? It matches 6th century B.C. Imperial Aramaic, the kind of language in the tone, in the, in the, in the, what am I looking for, the dialect that would have been used in the palaces. Where did Daniel work in the 6th century? So, I mean, we have archaeological, we have linguistic evidence. So the very linguistic evidence that these guys say, oh, Daniel, it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit in the 6th century, it doesn't fit in the 2nd century either on that scale. As far as his, his, the common Aramaic, but the language of Daniel perfectly matches the 6th century Aramaic used in the empire and the palaces of Babylon and Persia, which is where Daniel was when he wrote the book of Daniel. 
But like I say, a person can argue that and say, well, I don't believe it. Fine, let's call it second century BC. How did he predict the rise and the fall of the other empires that would come, the breakup of Rome? I mean, look, you have world conquest, kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, all the world has ever known is one conquers another. Here come the Persians and they conquer the Babylonians, right? Before the Babylonians, it was the Assyrians, right? We pick up with Babylon in prophecy because God's zeroing in on his people and that interaction. So the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians. The Babylonians conquered by the Persians. Then the Greeks conquered the Persians and the Romans conquered the Greeks. Now we come to Rome. Who's going to conquer Rome? The pattern has been the nation gets conquered, but now all of a sudden a new thing happens. Rome isn't conquered. Rome becomes corrupted because of its own love for ease and pleasure, and it fragments. And Germanic tribes come in from the north, and they sack Rome, and it's divided up. Now, if you're going with prediction, have you ever predicted anything before? I'm not talking about, you know, like, okay, this is what... I'm just saying, have you ever tried to say, I think this is what's going to happen? What do you base a prediction on? Previous history, a pattern, right? You look for a pattern. You say, based on this pattern, I think, well, who could have possibly predicted that that fourth empire that was stronger than all the others would fragment into pieces? It's just, it's just not logical that somebody would say, okay, there's going to be, there's going to be, here's, you know, Daniel's day. Okay, king, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have empires. You're going to have, you're the empire of Babylon. You're going to have three more empires. They're going to conquer just like they always have. But you know when you get that fourth one? Nobody's going to conquer it. It's going to divide up. It doesn't make sense. You understand what I'm saying? It, it, it gives credibility to Daniel because it's a kind of prediction that nobody would predict. Right? It's the long shot. It's like you never, no, 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 it's going to divide up? Well, that's never happened before. No, it's going to divide up into ten toes. Now, there are people today who will argue the division of Rome and how many parts it was divided into. It, there, there aren't 10 divisions today. Those, those divisions became the modern nations of Europe, and there's far more than 10. But I believe originally there were 10, and I believe that's why there's 10 toes on the image and 10 horns we see in Daniel. But I don't, people, there are things that people can argue. People will say, people may argue that and say, well, how do you know there are 10 toes? How can you verify that? Well, you've got a lot of different, if, you, if you're used to reading history, you'll know the historians don't always agree with each other. And there are some things that are clearer than others. Here's what you need to understand. There are certain points sometimes that you can concede in a Bible study because it really doesn't matter. For example, and I'm not trying to pick on our speaker, but uh, Elder Bohr went over the other morning about the Sabbath and, and, and we did the Sabbath begin that first Sabbath or, you know, we, he rested first and everything. That's never an issue I'm going to get into in a Bible study. It's irrelevant to, to demonstrating that the Sabbath is the seventh day. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, there are certain things that people may pick at and try to throw at you that really don't make a difference. So somebody says, well, I don't believe Rome is divided into ten parts. Okay, fine. It was still divided. It was still divided. The point of the prophecy is Rome would be divided. Now let's, I'm, I'm, I'm commenting on that, but let's look at Daniel. And uh, go to Daniel 2 with me. And when you're, when, when the, when, uh, or point number one, the background and setting of the prophecy, this is not taking a lot of time. Sometimes I'll go into Daniel chapter one. So if you look in your Bible at Daniel one, it tells us right there in the beginning, in the what? Third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay? That third year of Jehoiakim was in 605 B.C. Just so you understand this, because it will come into play. This is one of those things that people will try to trip you up with sometime. We use a Gregorian calendar. That calendar runs from January through December. The Persians and the Babylonians and the Israelites did not use Gregorian calendars, okay? And their calendars would run from our fall to fall or spring to spring. Now, the Jews had two calendars. They had a spring to spring religious calendar and then a fall to fall civil calendar for the government. And so what you'll find by when you're reading a real, I don't want to say, I don't want to say credible, but when you get into historical dates, sometimes you'll find this date here being listed like this. It won't be just one little nice, neat 605 because it runs across the limits of our calendar. So sometimes you'll get into this this week. We talk about the 2300-day uh, prophecy and the beginning of that and some other people will say, well, this history book says this date and this history book says whatever. Okay, fine. You'll find that most of your prophecies aren't real dependent on, like 605 B.C. for Babylon, I'm not dependent on that to prove that Daniel predicted the rise and fall of four empires, the division of the fourth, the attempts to reunite, uh, and those attempts have all failed. You understand my main point? So people might pick at stuff, and you've got to learn in some places to say, fine. <laughs> That's not the point of the study. But it also can help you to know that they may be understanding these prophetic dates from a Gregorian calendar and not understanding that different civilizations use different calendars than we do. Now I'm going to tell you, I, you know who I get into those discussions with? Adventists or people who simply just don't want to believe no matter what you do. Okay? So sometimes we get all worked up. If you have a person who is seeking for truth, you'll know the difference. They're not going to nitpick stuff, okay? And so I, I, I'm saying that because when I put some of this stuff up, you're like, okay, you got to remember all this. No, it'll probably never come up in any study you ever give. But it's good to know there's an answer, and that's why I share it, because you, you, you might forget all that and be like, I know there's an answer for this. And look, call me up, email me, get in a, go to your pastor, whatever else, and say, hey, you know, I know there's something, if you, if you ever get in that situation. But no, there's a good explanation for it, and it doesn't take away from the, the crux of the prophecy. So sometimes I'll go in, Daniel chapter 1, and just give a little background as to the timing of Daniel. Because the prophecy gains its force from the fact that it's prediction. Right? I mean, if, if we read it today, and that's what happens sometimes where we lose some of the force of it, is it becomes in our mind like a history. It's not history, it's prophecy. And we got to remember it, it was written in all this detail that we're reading before any of it ever happened. And so when I'm giving the prophecy, when I'm giving this Bible study, I've got it. That's all we're talking about here is giving the background and setting, letting them understand that as Daniel was taken captive into Babylon with his people, and this whole situation comes up, and Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, we're back in 600 B.C. before this stuff ever happened. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And so your studies are going to walk you through some of the narrative of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Who gave God... Uh, who gave God? I gave it away. Who gave Nebuchadnezzar his dream? It's interesting, and there's, there's so many interesting things to bring in from Daniel that are practical Christian things that 
I'm not going to get into now. But, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had all this dependence on his wise men, his astrologers, and his soothsayers. And evidently, they had a real convincing way of explaining dreams and things like that. So God says, watch this. I'm going to give him a dream that he can't remember. Right? He comes in and says, hey, I had this dream. I was out in this field, and the wind was blowing, and I said, and, and the astrologers come in, and they say, the soothsayer's like, yeah, I think that field represented the kingdom of such and such. And then, I mean, you can come up with anything, right? And evidently, it was very convincing until this, but the king could not remember the dream. Well, these guys know all the answers, right? So it shouldn't be hard for them. They're always coming up with the interpretation. They ought to be able to come up with the dream too, right? And they couldn't. The Bible says, if you look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 10, look at verse 9. Well, we're in the... He says, the king says, if you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to what? To speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time was changed or has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know what? That you can give me the interpretation. What's happened is now that they can't give the dream, the king is questioning if these guys ever were being honest with him. He says, you guys have been lying to me because if you weren't lying to me, you could tell me what the dream is. So God is shaking his faith in all of his religious gurus. Let me tell you something. When you're giving Bible studies, the same God of heaven will shake the faith of the people you're studying with and their religious gurus. I've had it happen. People go back and they talk to them. I'm going to go back and talk to my pastor. And guess what? Their pastor can't give them an answer from the Bible. And this person, this lay person who's coming to their house studying the Bible with them can give them answers from the Bible. He has a way of shaking faith, just like he did in, in this situation with Daniel. Well, long and short of it, the king has a dream. He forgets his dream. Nobody can tell him the dream but Daniel. And the study, any Bible study is going to set that up with question and answer. And then we come to Daniel sharing with the king the dream and the interpretation. And so in verse 31, now one, I should say this, one verse that this particular study doesn't bring out and one that I might insert in a study, and I wrote a note of it in here, is verse 28, where the Bible says, There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be when? In the latter days. So already we know the vision is reaching into the latter days. That can be important in the study. But even then, this study doesn't bring that out, and it still makes the point. Okay? But we come to verse 31, and this is where you have the dream where Daniel tells the dream, and, and he describes what the king saw. He saw this great image, and, and what did the image of Daniel 2 look like? You say like this, <laughs> right? Head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass or bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, Right? We're just going through, the study is going to go through and ask these questions and establish, again, it's a narrative, so it's kind of a read-through and your study's just breaking it, it up. But when Daniel shares with Nebuchadnezzar the dream, and Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the dream, it was a dream of an image made up of different metals, and then the feet were made of iron and clay, right? And what happened to the image? And now this is interesting to me, and it's something that sometimes I bring on later on. It says that there is, well, how was it? What happened to the image? Broken by? Okay, there is a rock 
What does the Bible specifically say about that rock? It says there was a rock, a stone, and it doesn't it doesn't say that in the in the initial part of the vision. It just says that a stone um, struck the image and became a great mountain. So it says in verse 35, then the iron, the clay, the bronze. I'm sorry, no, it does in verse 34. You watch while a stone was cut out without hands. That just tells us it was not a human thing that was done. This stone is representing something else, which the Bible is going to tell us about. And it struck the image on his feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And what happened to the pieces? It says they were what? So let me ask it this way. Did the stone hit the, the feet and then the image kind of topple like this and break into four large chunks? What does the Bible say it looked like? Okay, does anybody know what chaff is? Have you ever seen a grain like, yeah, if you have a grain like wheat and there's an outer hull and, and so they would go to something called a threshing floor and they would beat, they would thresh the grain and the grain would fall out of the head uh, and then the, 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 the chaff, the light airy part would, 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 would come and it would fall on the threshing floor and then they'd use what was called a winnowing fan. Now this is back in Bible times, you see this language and then you've got more modernized methods. But the fan would blow away the chaff because it was lightweight and the grain was heavy and so the grain would remain and the chaff would blow away. Okay, so Daniel's using this imagery with the image. Even though it's all metal, it's ground up and then the wind comes and whoosh, how much of the image is left? None of it. Okay, the image, as the, the stone hit the image, the image is pulverized and every trace of it is gone. Now this can be important from a standpoint of there are Christians who believe that when Jesus comes again, he's going to establish an earthly kingdom here. Has anybody ever heard that? There's going to be a secret rapture, and then the saints are going to be taken to heaven, and then Jesus is going to come back, and they're going to establish it. He's going to establish an earthly kingdom right here with the kingdoms of this world as they are. Okay? But Daniel 2 tells us that the kingdoms of this world are going to be completely blown away. Okay? So there are just little points that... that uh, there's a lot in the prophecies, obviously, that, that, that uh, I don't bring that out in a study, so I shouldn't be bringing it up here. It's one of those little side points. So the great, sometimes I'll go through this portion of a study. You, they see the dream, and I'll ask the person, so what did Nebuchadnezzar see? And I have them restate that. Well, I saw an image. What did it look like? What was the head made out of? What was the chest and arms? Anyway, but it's pretty straightforward, and especially if they have a picture in their study, yeah, I got an idea of what that is. Now Daniel goes and gives the interpretation, and this is where I want to zero in on some things. Daniel says in verse 36, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Now I don't want you to miss verse 37. This I always emphasize when I give the study. You, O king, are what? You, O king, are... No, verse 37, a king of kings. Now, if I were just to ask you right off, what, what, what is a king of kings? What's the first thing you think of? God or Christ, right? Because that's the title that goes to him, but it's not talking about Christ, it's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? And I've asked people this, so king of kings, oh yeah, it's talking about Jesus. No, it's not talking about Jesus. So why would you call Nebuchadnezzar the king of kings? What is a king of kings? He's a world ruler, right? Now, this is key because we're, we're wanting... So here's the Bible predicting. There's this image. In this image, it's going to go on to tell us, is representing 
these nations. Okay, verse 37. So, uh, this is what I'll do. I'll read through verse 37 to 39. Okay, you are king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. So here in the interpretation, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. And right, right now, we may just think Nebuchadnezzar the king himself is what is represented by the head until we come to the next verse. But after you shall arise, what? Another kingdom. So the language right there tells us that when we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold, we're not talking about Nebuchadnezzar himself, but what? His kingdom. Okay? But there's going to come another kingdom inferior to yours, then a third kingdom, a kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Okay? So we know we're dealing with the image as a representation of coming kingdoms. You following that? Now, what kingdoms are we looking for? And this is why, I, this is where I'll zero in on that head of gold. Uh, not the head of gold, but the king of kings statement. A king of kings, or a king over the other kings, means this is the he, he's the head honcho. He's the big cheese. He's the king over everything. So, in other words, we're not just dealing with some small nation somewhere. We're dealing with a world-dominating empire. That's why he's called a king of kings. And when it talks about the conquering kingdoms that come, it says a second kingdom is going to come, a kingdom of silver, and then a third kingdom of bronze, which shall, what does the language say? Which shall rule what? How much of the earth? All the earth. Okay, this is important when you're trying to point to extra biblical sources. It gives a, a stability and solidifies your study because you're making the point. Here's the Bible predicting what kind of kingdom is going to come. Nebuchadnezzar is a king of kings. He's a world empire. Well, let's just ask the question. Do the history books... I mean, this is the Bible. This is something written in 600 B.C. Okay, does the Bible bear out... That, that, that uh, does history, rather, bear out what the Bible's saying, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be a world ruler? Yeah, Babylon was a world empire. Okay, what about Persia? Does the Bible bear that out? Or does the world history, rather? Yes. What about the next one? It says a third kingdom of bronze. Was Babylon conquered by another world empire? Yes, it was. And that empire was Medo-Persia. Was Medo-Persia conquered by a world empire? Yes, it was. That was the empire of Greece. And I can go outside the Bible to a history book and I can find that. Now, if we're not talking about world empires, we're talking about some small little civilization, it might be harder now to verify it. That's the beauty of Daniel 2 is it's not hard to find a world empire. <laughs> a world, let's see, a world dominating empire. Who would that be? Let's see, who conquered? You know, you can go back and, and anybody can see that. That's why the critics are like, no, it had to be in 200 B.C. because it's so plain. So the third kingdom is going to rule over all the earth. And then he says a fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in peace and shatters everything and that like iron crushes, etc. It's going to crush all the others. So again, you've got the fourth world empire. And then the Bible begins to describe the division and says the kingdom is going to be divided Verse 42, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And as you saw 
iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will what? They will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another. They're not going to stick, just as iron does not mix with clay. And I like to ask sometimes that if you put some iron in a bucket and you put clay in a bucket and you stir it and stir it and stir it, how long do you have to stir it before you make clyron? You won't. Because you can't make clyron, because it doesn't stick, it doesn't mingle together. And the Bible's using this imagery to say that Rome is going to be divided up. So we go back in history, and what do we find? We see Rome divided. And in fact, I have a handout, I'll give it to you after the, after the uh, lunch, that gives you a parallel of Daniel 2, 7, and 8. And it gives you those ten divisions of Rome initially. Rome would be divided, well, we see that happen. And it became what we know as the modern nations of Europe. And then the Bible says they're going to try to adhere together. Right? I mean, who doesn't want to be a world empire? And we've seen that throughout history. We've seen people like the Kaisers of Germany and, and, and uh, specifically Wilhelm. And we see, and you know some of these names like uh, uh, Napoleon and um, Charlemagne and some of these other, just a few people who have tried to come and reunite Europe, right? And there's talk today, um, some is accurate and some not, about the European Union and other attempts to unite Europe. But what did the Bible say? It says it's not going to cleave together, not going to stick together, just like iron doesn't stick with clay. Uh, a point that I like to bring up, just for verification in history, it's interesting to me, I mentioned Kaiser. Have you heard the term Kaiser before? Okay? Uh, I'm not talking about bread either, but it comes from that, you know, Kaiser rolls and what have you. But the Kaisers of, of, of Germany, it was a title, like, like, like uh, yeah, like, Nepo like uh, the Ptolemies of Egypt, right? You have the Kaisers. Kaiser means Caesar. Why would the Germans adopt a name that meant Caesar as a title? Because they wanted the la what was the last reigning world empire? It was ruled by the Caesars, right? And so we're going to call ourselves Kaisers, Right? In Russia, they have czars. What do you think the word czar means? Caesar. Why are they adopting this name? Because the Bible said, and we see history bearing it out, that everything the Bible said would happen in Daniel 2 happened. Everything has happened to this point, and all the attempts to reunite have happened, just like the Bible said way back in 600 B.C., and here we're living in 2017 A.D., and everything has happened you can't find a fault in this prophecy. Everything has happened just exactly like the Bible said would happen. Every attempt to reunite has failed. There's one thing left to happen. What is the one thing? It's that stone kingdom that is going to come and crush all the others and fill the whole earth, and it's going to stand forever. And I love the way that Daniel finishes up in verse 45. He says, the dream is certain. And its interpretation is sure. When you share this study with somebody and they grasp the significance of it, it brings them face to face with the divine. There was a divine hand over human history. And this is where you help to make the application that as much as there's been a divine hand over human history, that divine hand is the hand of a personal God. And that divine hand has been over your history and your future. If God knows the future of nations and can predict them with such accuracy, does he know your future? 
What does he have in plan for you? And one thing, so there's a few different ways you can go when you come to the end of the Daniel study. There's always an application. Like, okay, we see that the Bible has said all these things. This is where I can make application. Now, now, are we willing to look at this and accept that the Bible is more than just a book written by men? That there's a divine hand behind it. That it's the inspired word of God. A God who knows the future and knows my future and your future. Does that give me confidence in the word of God or at least an interest to say I'm willing to continue studying the word of God to understand it better? That's generally your appeal when you come to, you're going to have three different appeals that come at the end of Daniel 2. There's that as far as trusting the word of God. There's another one that has to do with can you see where we are in the image? And you've probably heard people say that the, the, the toenails at this point. We're way down at the end, right? We've seen everything else happen. Where are we in, in, in Earth's history? We are down at the end of time. We are just about to see the coming of Christ if the prophecy is correct. And we've seen that every other part is correct. You know what it does to a person when they realize Jesus is coming soon? It makes them think about things different, right? And the, and the, and the last appeal that, that I like to make on this is, you know, we've seen these world empires... And in a study, you might have a little more time when you're actually going through the study to embellish a little, not, not embellish, but how great was Babylon? How great was Persia? I mean, in the, in the day, the new, if you had lived in these kingdoms, what, what, what would it have been like? Were they just little passing kingdoms? These were the greatest kingdoms of the world, right? Two, two, of, the, was it two, of, the seven, two of the wonders of the ancient world, one, at least one was in, in ancient Babylon, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, you got these magnificent kingdoms. If you had lived then, it would have seemed like that kingdom would last forever, right? You lived in Persia, it would have felt like your kingdom was going to last forever. The, the greatest, most powerful, most influential kingdoms of this world have come and gone. And God has predicted it the whole time. The whole time, when it looked like Babylon would last forever, when it looked like Greece would last forever and Persia and Rome, God said it's not going to work. They're going to fail. There's only one kingdom that lasts forever. And I like to ask people, which kingdom are you investing your life in today? And now we're living, well, we're in America. Just like all the others. Look, it's a great kingdom. Well, we probably have a few more signs now that America's got its challenges. But the point is this. Why did God give this vision to Nebuchadnezzar? Why did he give it to Daniel? Why does he give it to you and me? So that we can choose to invest ourselves in the one kingdom that lasts forever. Right? So when I get down to the end of this study, I don't want a person to say, oh, that's really cool. I want them to say, yeah, I, I see that there's a God behind the Bible. I want to commit myself to that. I want to commit myself to at least learning more about him. I want them to be able to say, I see that if this prophecy's happened, just like I said, then Jesus is coming is soon. I want to be ready for that coming. I want that person to be able to say, I want to invest myself in the kingdom of Jesus, the eternal kingdom, and stop investing myself in the kingdoms of this world that are going to fail, right? And so when you get to the end, that's, your appeal is going to be, and we'll talk about this more uh, uh, after lunch, but you kind of get the gist. Let's, we're, we went over, so let's go ahead and dismiss, and we can pick up some more um, afterwards. Thank you for your time and attention, and let's pray. You guys hungry? This is about lunchtime, huh? It'll be just... Perfect. The sun's shining. Amen. Pray this afternoon. Let's pray the rain holds off. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the testimony of your word. Lord, everything has happened just as you said it would. 
And Father, you've given that to us just to give us more confidence in who you are, to give us more confidence in your word, the word of truth, that it may separate us, that it may sanctify us, Father, set us apart as your holy people. Bless us to that end, Lord, as we uh, go from here and as we come back together to study your word, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to guide us and bless us in amazing ways during this camp meeting. We ask and pray it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.